Hey everybody, this is Wayne and this is the Green Paul Podcast. Our guest today is a dear friend of mine, Alexandra Paul, who's just one of the sweetest, kindest people on the face of the planet Earth. I have known her for, what, close to 10 years now. I've never seen her angry or even resentful or negative once. <laughs> Maybe the closest I've come is in this podcast, actually. She complains, or doesn't complain, but criticizes another podcast guest uh, I've had on the, uh, on the show in the last few months. But even then, it's, it's such a polite, respectful and curious criticism that it's hard to say that it's a negative. But Alexandra has had a fascinating life story. She's been an actor, in, including the star of one of the most famous television shows of the 80s and 90s. In fact, I learned in this conversation that show, Baywatch, was at the time the most watched television show on the face of the planet Earth. She has been arrested for all sorts of protests, from anti-nuclear war protests to sitting in her car when GM was trying to crush the early electric cars in, you know, one of these huge, basically trash compactors. And she sat in her car to try and prevent them from crushing it when they were trying to kill the electric car in the early 2000s. To obviously animal rights, which is how I know her. She has walked with us into factory farms and walked out with animals who were on the brink of death. And I think the fundamental question of this conversation is one that really isn't answered, and it is this. Does safety lead to risk-taking, or does risk-taking lead to safety? You see, when I asked Alexandra why it was that someone with so much privilege, so many resources, um, so much happiness in life would be willing to take so many risks and go through so much adversity to make the world a better place, she said it was precisely because of her privilege. It's because, you know, I'm a, I'm a white, upper-middle-class woman who lived in Connecticut and, you know, got offers to Stanford and uh, was a celebrity in Hollywood and had all these resources that other people didn't have. And because of that, I was willing to take risks. But I suspect, and, and I, I think you should think about this too, as you're listening to this conversation, that the opposite may be equally true. In other words, that is precisely because she was willing to take risks to make the world a better place at key moments in her life, that she's become a secure, safe, and confident person today. But you should decide for yourself. It's a fascinating conversation. Alexandra is so fun to talk to. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Without further ado, here is Alexandra Paul. Alexandra, I am super excited to be here. It's already been such a pleasure. You're always such an amazing host. Um, and I've wanted to talk to you for a long time because I sort of see your life, you know, the old book, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. I've heard of it, but I yeah. have had Luckily, I've never read it because I'm sure I won't like it. Thomas Hardy, just I hated Thomas Hardy in high school, so I'm pretty sure I wouldn't like A Tale yeah. of Two Cities. Uh, it's, it's actually kind of an awful book in a lot of ways. And it's it's weird when you read some of these old English, or frankly, any old author, because they didn't have editors. And they, they were working off pen and paper and eventually typeset, which is really hard to write well. I mean, anyone who's a writer knows editing is a huge part of the process. And you write and you cut and you write and you cut, and it was hard for them to do. But the great writers still had this attribute of energy, even if their writing was a little long-winded. A Tale of Two Cities was a story that had incredible energy, and I love this story, even though the writing obviously has something to, to, to have been improved in it. And it's, it's a tale of kind of one city, actually, but two cities, namely the two classes within the city, the bourgeoisie and the, the upper class, and, and then the lower class, the working class, and how downtrodden they are. And the beginning scene of the book is like a carriage going through and running over someone who's poor, and the person who's rich just throws some coins out to the family, the person was just killed by a horse carriage and says, that's all you get. Um, and the, the reason I think your life to me is like a tale of two siblings is because you have two siblings, right? I think it's two, Jonathan and Caroline, both of them I know. 
And the lives have gone in many ways, at least superficially, in very different directions. Right? Caroline went to Stanford, became a New York Times selling best, best-selling author. She was also a firefighter, which is amazing. But then Jonathan was a convicted animal rights activist who's alleged to have been a terrorist by the U.S. government. So one person went down what seems like a very mainstream path. Another person went down a path that seems very radical. And I see your life as kind of straddling the two. That's <laughs> so interesting. You took some risks. Right? You, I know you got into Stanford, decided not to go. You went into acting, which is also very risky. And then, but I also see your life as it's a tale of two siblings. One sibling <laughs> going in this direction, one sibling going in that direction. And you've kind of been pulled in both directions at certain points in your life. And I think over the last five years, certainly in your experiences of me, you've definitely been pulled in the Jonathan Paul direction. Yes, I And not I the Caroline Paul direction. And not that happily. Caroline hasn't done tremendous stuff too. And she's an incredibly right. brave person who's also been pulled in Jonathan Paul direction. But do you think that's a fair characterization of your family and your history? Well, it's interesting because um, my brother, my sister, my brother Jonathan, my sister Caroline, my mother Sarah, and myself have all been arrested wow. for our beliefs. So just and your dad. Is the only my one. dad has not. My dad was a banker uh-huh. and in New York City at Morgan Stanley. He was a partner in Morgan Stanley, extremely conservative. But my mother, who's very liberal, always said, it's really wonderful how your father has supported you kids in all your um, ideals, even though he didn't share them. Because I don't know if I would have done that if you were very conservative. (laughs) So my dad was really supportive. And when my brother was in jail uh, at one point for refusing to speak to uh, a grand jury Mm -hmm. about other people involved in animal rights actions, my father was out there on the street holding a sign saying, you know, unfair imprisonment, et cetera. So he was, um, and when I was on my way to go to uh, jail, actually, uh, myself for five days for doing a, um, a, uh, protesting the Iraq war, you know, I called him right before Mm. I went in and, and, uh, and he was very supportive. That's amazing. So, yeah. yeah. And he was a guy who would not call, he mostly did this just to, just to nudge his kids, but he mm-hmm. wouldn't call Kennedy Airport Kennedy Airport. Hmm. He called it Idlewild, which was its old name before it was named after John uh, Kennedy, Kennedy Jr. Who- the Democrat. <laughs> <Yes>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So tell me more about how, how your family upbringing led you to the path you took. Because, you know, I think most people, for those of you who don't know, Alexandra was an actress, was an actor, was in a show that was, you know, honestly, probably the most famous television show maybe in the country in the 1990s. It was and, actually the most watched television show in the world wow. in um, the 1990s, yes. Yeah, I definitely knew about it. I think and it's I in the Guinness watched, Book of World Records. I, I believe it. You know, I, I, I didn't watch any TV. My parents didn't let, let me watch TV. And I knew what Baywatch is. Everyone knew what Baywatch oh, was. Okay. And still, to this day, it has massive cultural currency. And I, I just want to understand, like, what was the family upbringing like that led the kids down such dramatically different paths? Um, like a path of privilege, for sure. You know, going to Stanford, having a father who's a banker at Morgan Stanley, one of the largest investment banks in the world, and a path of tremendous resistance too. not just your brother, but now you. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I feel like you are the one who's carrying the mantle now um, that your brother held for so long as the member of the family who's doing a lot of radical things that are, are disrupting the system in very powerful and very important ways, but very controversial ways too. So mm-hmm. just tell me about like the family backdrop. What was your first experience of activism, for example? Well, um, yeah, I've thought a lot. People have wondered this, like what bred these three children who Mm -hmm. were um, 
so follow their values. Uh, what, what were your parents like? Yeah. And my father was a conservative from Ohio, grew up in a poor family, but mm. he was, uh, went to Yale and Harvard on the GI Bill. Wow. So, uh, you know, even though he grew up poor, he was white and he went to war. And so after the war, they, they mm-hmm. let people, uh, gave money to go to, to college. And mm-hmm. my and father- the Vietnam War? Uh, no, it was World War II. World War II. Wow. Yeah. So he was that mm-hmm. old. Okay. Yes. He was born in 1925. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm 58. So that's amazing. That's, uh... You look like you're 30. <laughs> no. You do. I mean, <laughs> so, um, so he went and he was thrust into this world that he didn't feel comfortable in. I learned later, he never felt he was enough. Hmm. And he married my mother who was a British woman from a conservative family and but she left that family because she had more liberal ideals. Mm. And she grew up during World War II, which gave Mm. her a sensibility of not wasting. And so when we were growing up in rural Connecticut, um, you always turned off the light. You always put on a sweater instead of turning up the heat. Mm -hmm. We cared about, you know, driving cars that weren't too polluting. And it was because of her ethic of being a child of the war rather than an environmental ethic. But sure. I and my siblings, I think, looked at it as an environmental ethic because we mm. had no understanding of war, no. but we did know what nature and the country was like because that's what we were growing up in, and we cared about animals and nature. Mm-hmm. So to me, turn recycling meant we did it because it was better for the environment, whereas sure. my mother learned it because you had to recycle when, mm-hmm. uh, metals when you were in the war. And was she in the United Kingdom or the United States? Uh, United Kingdom. United she Kingdom. grew up in, okay. in Great Britain. Yeah, so they got hit much harder than us. Yes, I mean, that right. Was, oh, no, she, that she was had to go to the country. Hardship, real hardship for the yeah. folks in the United Kingdom during World War II. Right. And my dad grew up during the Depression, so he right. had an idea of conservation that was more about not spending a lot of money mm. and things and not being too showy. And he was just very... Basically, a conservative man. Hmm. He loved animals, though. Yeah, I saw a and, picture of him holding a cat. Mm. Yeah, he just he loved doesn't look like a conservative in that. Photo. Animals, yes. And my mom respected animals, hmm. so she didn't. She wasn't all lovey dovey like my dad. But we, when we had animals, we we took really good care of them. The, hmm. the dogs had to be walked for an hour a day. The horses had to be um, ro- ridden an hour a day. And the tack clean. I mean, there's a lot of discipline involved. So I think we had respect and love for animals and the environment because of my two parents and an, an environmental ethic that came from, uh, you, you know, from my parents, but that was really, for them, it wasn't an environmental ethic, but for us, it became one. Hmm. And also my mom, she didn't work uh, outside the home. So she volunteered. She gave blood. Um, I remember that I was just in awe because she gave blood and got free cookies, and my mm. mother didn't really let us have sweets in the house, mm-hmm. so that was like wow. That's prescient. <laughs> I feel like back in that era, I mean, I, even when I was growing up, everyone didn't see sugar as the problem. Yeah, well, she came from England, where whole yeah. food was much more valued, and junk sure. food, and t- the the height no, no, no. of like gorgeousness for us was t- a TV dinner, which I remember getting <laughs> once as yeah. a special treat. <laughs> And Wonder Bread, nice. which my mother thought was horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> this is that super hyper-processed white bread that comes in the like right, I think it's like red, white, and blue packaging. It, it's like white that. with these big yeah. dots that are dots. yellow, okay. that are very primary colors, red, right. yeah. uh, yellow, and blue. Do they even yeah. sell that stuff anymore? I don't, I don't know. And I can't even stand it anymore. Yeah. I couldn't even eat it now if you, yeah. you know. 
unless I was in jail. I think I did yeah. eat it in jail, maybe. But otherwise, it's super cheap. It's like ninety nine cents a loaf, and yeah, you know, yeah, all sorts of. So that's how we. And then you know we didn't have television. When we were growing up. My mother mm. was very strict about that. There was a little black and white, but it came out only for, you know, the Olympics. The mm-hmm. resignation of Nixon, the man on the moon, these are the kind of things it came out for. And maybe a couple hours a week, we were allowed to watch like Happy Days. I did see Happy Days. So, mm-hmm. but so we read a lot. And, and this we, is three kids, right? You, yeah. Jonathan, Carolyn, all growing up in the same house. And what's the, you and Carolyn are obviously twins. Jonathan's older than you by how much? He's younger by oh, two younger. and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's older. Okay. So we we read just a lot. He was older because we... he went to prison before you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, he led the way because my brother Jonathan um, became vegan when he was sixteen. Wow. And I became vegetarian when I was fourteen after okay. reading um, Diet for a oh, Small America. Planet by oh, Francis Morlaplay, okay. but. Um, you know, he he became vegan, and that okay. was really unusual. There were some, there were vegetarians around in the. Let's see, when I was fourteen, it was seventy six. Sure, seventy. Sorry, uh, seventy five. So there were some vegetarians around, not too many in Connecticut, okay. but. Um, so this but my is brother early nineteen eighties when he's going vegan then. Uh, he w- he went at the no at the at, in the seventies still. still yeah okay. maybe late seventies yeah 70s. okay so um and uh, yeah. That's the story. Well, I think what, what started the where... activism? I mean, I, I see this desire to conserve, which I had in my family, right? Um, but I got involved in activism much later than all of you, and especially you know, radical activism for me is has been quite the journey. I mean, I started out doing the tamest stuff. The first protest I went to in like 2003, I literally was shaking and holding my sign, and here I am now facing I don't know how many <laughs> felony prosecutions for doing open rescues. So it took a lot of development and incremental improvement. And for your family, I feel like. They kind of left for right from the start, or at least Jonathan did. And all of you supported him, from what I understand. Yeah. I think my first activism was writing to President Nixon when I was about eight, asking him to stop pollution. Hmm. And we, my sister wrote too, and, and our friend Nancy wrote, and we all got a letter back. Wow. And we were just ecstatic that President Nixon had heard us. And then we noticed that they were all the same, same letter, letter, realized yeah. it was a form letter, but still we <laughs> felt heard. Sure. And that was huge. Yeah. And then in the my mom boycotted lettuce because of Cesar Chavez and the, yeah, farm, and the workers. farm workers. So iceberg lettuce, grapes, table grapes, and then tuna. We didn't eat white tuna because of the bycatch of mm-hmm. dolphins. Sure. So those are the small acts that my mother sort of, you know, instigated in our household and it became it felt good to do that Hmm. so there's no resentment no pushback uh then i don't remember any that's amazing no i mean it was the 70s where people were starting to be more open the first earth day came in 1970 yeah and so people were more conscious save the whales was huge Um, and then in 1978 or so there was an energy crisis. So the environment became more, I was president of the environmental. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. Jimmy Carter in the 1970s and the late 90s. I mean, honestly got him in a little trouble (laughs) because he lost the election in 1980, right? To Reagan. But one of his big initiatives was put on a sweater and take cold showers. Ah, yeah. People probably, Americans aren't that, that. (laughs) Americans aren't into that. But remember, I had a British mother who was all about that. Yeah. So. I didn't actually mean pushback culturally. I meant within the family. Like, I'm just surprised that a lot of the kids. Oh, we were fine with it. Oh, no, we were, yeah. And then your father, too. I mean, your father is a conservative banker who's 
financing these businesses that are selling these products and you're saying, don't eat this, don't do that, don't use TVs. I mean, the typical stereotype of a banker is someone who's living the high life, you know, the wolf of Wall Street. He's (laughs) buying luxury yachts (laughs) and doing drugs and, you know, has a harem of women. And it sounds like your father was... Very hardworking, conservative extremely loving. And loving, yeah. Um, conservative in and didn't that. have materialism as part of his identity. No, uh-uh. even though he was a banker. Right. I mean, yeah. we lived in rural Connecticut. A very mm. not a very. When you say Connecticut, people think Greenwich. No, we sure. were in the least. Um, it was two hours from New York City, and it was the least um, uh, ec- economically advantaged part of Connecticut. Okay. Actually. Huh. Uh, so, but it's beautiful. And, um, so we, I forgot where we're going with this, but would you, oh, you asked if there was pushback. How you, yeah. from so much privilege, got so involved in activism? Well, my mom, I think really, Just I do mom. attribute it a lot to my mom who, um, she, she was, came from like upper, upper middle class, um, England and okay. sort of older, established, not kind of a new money thing. Uh-huh. So uh, it wasn't something, yeah, my Cornwall, where I grew up, was not a wealthy uh, village. And there were summer people that came, and they were wealthy, but the people who lived there full-time weren't. Okay. So it wasn't something. Remember that being a white, middle-class girl, it just felt like nothing could touch us, touch us. I think. Mm. And you were a Chinese boy. That's totally different. Yeah upbringing and nothing really bad happened to us so i think huh. we felt like if we just did the right thing then everything would be fine my sure. mom had a very strong moral compass and my dad i think did too yeah um in his own way and um so that gave us a real strength i also you know i wasn't particularly good at anything i was fine at a lot of things i was sure. very well-rounded um and I really found that I sort of decided early on that being, now I use the word nice mm-hmm. then. Now I prefer to use the word kind because I mm-hmm. think nice, I gave up way too much of myself just so people would like me. Sure. Now I want to be kind so I can respect myself and make the world a better place. But I really wanted, I wanted to be the nicest girl in the world. Mm-hmm. That's where I thought I could excel. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> oh, um, and so, yeah, I was, I was sort of average at a lot of things, mm-hmm. but I really wanted to excel at so, being nice. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that, that distinction is a really important one, being nice and being kind. I, I wrote a blog post. Actually, one of the most shared blog posts I ever wrote was a blog post titled, Are Nice Vegans Making Us Look Bad? And, and the idea behind it was, and this is a huge part of the work I've done over the last 10 years that you've been a part of, is that nice is is bad because it's not authentic if you want to change people and if you want to change yourself you have to be real first of all and when you're nice you're putting up a face and that face is not something you can build on because it's a face it's it's not real and so whatever you build on it is going to crumble away the moment people see what the reality is and and so when people put up that face and you know smile when they don't actually feel great about something they you know um bear something that they know is unbearable. It's, it's actually a problem for progress. And it's something I think activists have learned for hundreds of years, that there's something about directly confronting these things that we see are problems that is crucial to creating change. 
I think nice, you really want a reaction. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you're really dependent upon the reaction. Being kind comes from within. Yeah. Um, and yes, I, it, it really was not, I, I was misdirected in that. But yeah. um, I also wanted to be nice to animals and nice to the environment and things. And so I've deepened that as I've gotten older and mm-hmm. it has more authenticity now. Yeah. So tell me about the family dynamic because I, I know that Caroline goes to Stanford and I think you go into acting. Did you come to LA? Yeah, in high school, and then Jonathan becomes just an animal rights activist, right? Who also he comes to California at some point, I know, and starts like hunt sabotages and you know mink releases, all these amazing things that he's done over the years. What is the family dynamic that leads these three kids in these three very dramatically different directions? One to Stanford, one to Hollywood, and one you know, direct action. We all, we have, I've always felt like I'm very much like my, my two siblings. I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing. I aspire to be more like my siblings. And in one area, when I was about 12, and I think this has been a driving force in my life because of my desire to be nice. I, and my, I was very easily influenced. Like I could always see someone's point of view. I could always go, oh, yeah, I understand that. Hmm. Yeah. I You're still really good at that, by the way. I'm good at that? <laughs> You're very good at that. You make people feel heard. That's good. Yeah, you'd be an amazing therapist. That's good. Like, if you ever wanted to become a therapist, <laughs> yeah, you've given me very good therapy over the years. Well, thank yeah. you. I always bring all my terrible problems. To she always consoles me and makes me feel better afterwards. Um, what I realized is that my sister and my brother were stronger than I because I wanted to be nice, I was, I really worried that if I had grown up in Nazi Germany, I would have been a good German. That I would have been influenced by the, uh, whatever the zeitgeist was. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel like I had a center. And so I've spent my whole life proving to myself that I would not have been a good German. Mm. And I'm, I feel more confident now because the, um, the issues that I fight for are not popular. Yeah. They don't make people like me or anything. Definitely not. Um, so, but my brother and sister never, I always looked at them as much stronger than I in that, hmm. in that area. Um, whenever I have a character to do that needs, that needs to be grounded and firm, I, my sister is, uh, yeah. I use her as to get that side out of me. Um, so the dynamic is that we, my sister and I, didn't we didn't go to the same schools for mm. the most part, even though we were twins, identical twins too. Um, my mom wanted us to have different identities, and wow, so except for a few, we were never in the same classroom. There were a few years we were in the same school, but we weren't in the same class. We were in, uh, on, along another track, um, except for three years when w- w- the school was so small there was no other track, and there mm. were no other schools. Um, so. Caroline um, says that she followed me and I say, well, God, I kept trying to be like you. I mean, the reason, the only reason I'm an athlete is because my sister is a much better athlete than I. Without Mm. her, I never would have been the athlete that I am today. Mm. Um, And of course, my brother's ethics in terms of veganism, I definitely followed. It took me a while um, to do it, but I certainly, he had a huge influence on me. So I, I went to... I decided to start acting and uh, didn't expect to not go to college, but decided after my acting career started taking off that 
that this year off that I was taking before Stanford, probably I wasn't going to go because I wanted Mm. to make the most of being in Hollywood. You know, when you're 21, you think you're old. I thought, Mm. I'm sorry, I was 18 at the time. I thought I was old and that if I came back after college to Hollywood when I was 21, I'd be too old. (laughs) So I decided not to go to college. Uh, Thought, figured I would go maybe later because my mom went to college when she was 40s, in her 40s, and she always said, college is wasted on the young. So when I told her I wasn't going... She really couldn't say anything. Sure. They were upset, though. Well, she was especially upset. My dad was pretty supportive. but And then my brother, he um, when he graduated from high school, he got involved with animal rights. But, you know, we didn't know a lot of the things that my brother was doing because sure. he was part of the Animal Liberation Front. Sure. I had absolutely no idea for 20 years that he was such a part of the Animal Liberation wow. Front because they did not talk about it. I yeah. knew he did things. But he didn't share them. And I and there were things, of course, above board that he did where he he protected whales up in Seattle area. He had hunt sabbing. I went on a hunt sab with him where mm-hmm. he was a hunt saboteur to protect the Thule elk here in California. He had a bus that he went up and down the state of California to educate school kids about um, the plight of the oceans. So he did a lot of above board things, but he was also doing things with the Animal Liberation Front. Um, And my sister was uh, also activating at Stanford. First Mm. she went to Georgetown, and then she went to Stanford after a couple of years. She didn't didn't enjoy uh, Georgetown. So she's doing activism. Yeah, oh yeah. In fact, when she... When she was about to graduate, she realized that she had one credit that she needed, Mm -hmm. and she went to the dean, and they said, you know what? We just want you out of here. You can go. You don't need to do <laughs> that because, yeah, she um, she there was a there was something at Stanford then in the eighties. Um, it's about eighty five, eighty six, where they were teaching. Western, it was a mandatory thing at Stanford, credit at Stanford, you had to take Western literature, Western mm-hmm. history, but not Eastern history or yep. Southern. And so the students were agitating because it was so colonialist sure. and yeah. European and white. And and Caroline was one of those people. And yeah. uh, Stanford didn't appreciate that. Yeah, and even Although they changed aside their... the, the viewpoint, diversity and the fact that we should, you know, tell the story of the world from the world's perspective, not just from the Eurocentric perspective. There's just a lot of value to get from adopting different perspectives and learning from different bodies of knowledge. So it's, it's really important just for the future of the human species. That makes a little more sense that all of you had this activism background, even though you took these different directions, there was still this core, this core value system that was animating everything you were doing. Yeah. And I was How did not that play involved- into the work you're doing in terms of acting was, was acting something you thought was part of your value system. Do you, did you see acting? as a way to change people and change the world in a positive direction? Or was it something just that you personally enjoyed? You thought it was a profession and a career? I fell into acting. I was modeling yeah. first in New York City, and okay. they were looking for an unknown girl to play a model in a huh. TV movie. And you did it. And I had an, I had an, uh, my modeling agency had a commercial department, and they had the commercial department wanted me to take acting lessons so okay. that they could send me on commercials and maybe a soap opera or two. Sure. And uh, so I took them. I took okay. acting lessons, and that I was like, "Wow, huh. this is, I love this." Yeah. And uh, so what was kind it about of, it that you loved? 
Well, we'd always been a family that went to museums or, you know, looked at art, but we never created, created art. art. Okay. You know, my mom is very cerebral and my dad too. And so um, we were outdoorsy, but we weren't creative. I never okay. considered myself creative. So it was just this world of being able to express your feelings and mm-hmm. express other sides of yourself, especially eyes like wanting to be nice all the time. I got to express my less nice side sure. and accept it. And in fact, you know, that's, that's where the gold is really yeah. in that shadow self. Um, so that was just eye opening for me and I really, really liked it. And I, gosh, I had wanted to be an environmental scientist. That was what mm-hmm. I put on all my college applications, but I did think, well, you know, being an actress, I can also help the world too, volunteering. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what I did. From day one in Hollywood, pretty much, I was involved with the, um, uh, this was the 80s, so it was a lot about recycling, getting recycling programs, which Mm -hmm. I already did at home anyway, but getting them into studios. And um, uh, the environment was just... It, global warming was just starting to mm-hmm, become mm-hmm. a watchword. I remember when I first heard about yeah. it, it was about 80, 88 for me. Yeah. yeah. Back then the bigger concern was the ozone layer, right? Which we, it's the a ozone and acid rain was big in the seventies. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I just read that the ozone layers repaired itself yeah, quite it's a lot. It, I mean, because we got it opens up in, in the summer and then mm-hmm. closes in the winter, vice versa over yeah. Antarctica. But yeah, because of what we did for sure in yeah. the, with the Montreal protocol and, and such, um, I was really involved with peace issues. Okay. I, I really was. I was this in the early eighties. I was, I really pretty much thought that I wasn't going to live till 35 because it was going to be a nuclear war. Yeah. And so I decided that I, that, that that's where I focused yeah. most of my energy. I think a lot of people felt that way. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember in the early 1980s, even from elementary school, you'd have these drills sometimes, right? Where, cause especially as the Berlin wall was crumbling and the Soviet Union was kind of falling apart, there was a concern that they could, as a last ditch effort, do something aggressive to try and maintain their hold on power. And thank God, Gorbachev, I think Gorbachev is actually one of the unspoken heroes of the last 50 years of human history because he could have gone in a very different direction. I mean, Gorbachev was a leader of the Soviet Union at the time and he decided, let's just kind of give it up. (laughs) Basically he gave it up and said, Let's just restructure and open up and let people go and, and let these countries that want to be separate from us go. And now we're seeing kind of deja vu all over again of Putin kind of trying to reverse what happened with the fall of the USSR. But, but back then, there was a path that could have been taken. You know, one direction was the direction of continued war. And, and that had happened previously with the, you know, the Czech Spring, the Prague Spring, where the USSR had very violently and brutally clamped down in an attempt to westernize and democratize Czechoslovakia. Um, but Gorbachev went in a different, different direction and it felt like history was over, you know, in the late 1980s when the Berlin wall came down, we thought everyone's going to live peacefully in democracy. <laughs> Look where we did. are today. I went, I went actually to Berlin three days after the war came down. Yeah. Wow. Three days after. Mm-hmm. So what was that like? Oh, my friend Daphne called. She was in London at the time and she said, Alexandra, let's go to Germany. Hmm. And so I just got up and got a plane ticket and flew there and it was there just must have been so many people there. so many people yeah. so many people and walking onto the eastern side was so different than the western side yeah, yeah, yeah. that the buildings were beautiful because they were all older yeah, yeah, yeah. they hadn't been renovated and modernized in that horrible yeah. 60s 70s architecture sure. uh, but there were very few cars that were it was it was um 
just, I mean, most people were in the West celebrating sure. anyway, but it was, it was very interesting. There were 30, I think people don't realize, or people today might not remember that. There were each side, the United States and Russia, we, they each had 30,000 nuclear warheads. Mm -hmm. Now we're down to like f four or 5,000 each side, sure. I think. Still enough to destroy the earth, unfortunately. Still way, way, but, <laughs> but how huge, right? That we were yeah. able to do that. Yeah. Um, but still, yeah. All and we that need. was Gorbachev too. Gorbachev did a lot of good. Yeah. So, uh, I, but I was very concerned. So I was involved with a lot of, yeah. um, that was when my f I went on the Great Peace March across yeah. the United States. I went. Can I ask you something else? I didn't realize you were there three days after the Berlin Wall came down. Mm -hmm. Did you talk to people from East Berlin? Did you speak any German? And were you able to talk to them? Well, they what, spoke what English. There? A lot they of spoke English. Spoke. I remember what, we what met. What was the thought process? Because, I mean, I think most people listening to this probably know this, but the Berlin Wall, first of all, Berlin is in the middle of East Germany, and only West Berlin is part of West Germany because there was an airlift back in the 1940s when this all went down, and you know, there was the Iron Curtain that came down, and, and people they weren't divided, even willing, Yeah, they divided, they divided the city in two. They divided G the Germany into... into and, and Russia itself. was, was uh, one of the allies, so Russia got essentially exactly. Eastern... Germany and that therefore it became communist yeah. because people forget that Russia was on our side too. They were on our side. In uh, World for, War II, yeah. For the first so. few years after 1945 and the end of World War II, there yeah. was a you know celebration of look what we did together. And then when the West and the capitalists, you know, I mean, not that the, the Communist Party in Russia or China did much good for the world either, but there is a concern that their model was going to disrupt and destroy the power structure in the West. And, and, and that caused the divide that was so severe that you could not cross the border. This is why there was a wall. No, one of, you when you cross the border, one of the and best so, museums is the, is the, uh, I think it's, is it called the wall museum? It's, mm -hmm. it's about all the people who tried to get over the wall wow. uh, and all I the things killed. about the wall, get uh, under the wall uh, from East Germany, East Berlin to West Berlin. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it must have been such a head trip for these folks to see this wall come down and say, I can now walk freely to the west side. I can go to West Germany. Yeah. I can travel. And similar was, thing happened with my family in China because, you know, China and Taiwan split in 1949, around the same time the Berlin Wall was being constructed. My grandfather left China and didn't see his little brother for 40 years because cross-strait travel was banned. China never recognized Taiwan. It still isn't recognized as a separate nation. And you know, what's happening in Ukraine now could be China tomorrow, unfortunately, and it's really scary. But the scariest thing is just the impact it has on the individuals, you know, and so many people whose families, their relationships, even just their bodies are stunted because in East Germany and the USSR and in communist China, like my grandfather was, was not a super tall man, but he grew to a relatively normal height for someone from China who was born in the 1920s and 1930s and you know, died in the 1980s and went to war in 1945. It was like five, six or so and fairly normal build. And when we first saw his little brother, who was, I think, six, he was like a shriveled up tiny man. Oh. He was like five foot tall and, and just weak. I think I saw an image of him. And it's because he had been sent to a camp, you know? And because if you were on the wrong side of that war and your family fled, the people yeah. who were left behind got fucked. Oh, wow. So, and the same thing was happening, I think, in East Germany and the USSR. So many families being split. Germany was the best example of this, but really throughout. Well, Eastern North Europe, Korea and South Korea. North Korea and South thing. Korea, but even Poland, Czechoslovakia, mm -hmm. there were all these relationships, these traditions, these, these people who were suffering because of this conflict. I don't even want to blame one side. I, I think in, in China's case, the KMT was a brutal dictatorship. I mean, it, it deserved to have a revolution. So ideologically, in many ways, 
I was on the side of the people who killed my family. You know, I, I think they kind of did and on some level, they were right about how problematic China was in the 1940s. But the solutions they used were in many ways worse than the problem they tried to solve. Because sending people thing. to camps and annihilating your enemies just isn't the right way forward. No. So. I, I've been, uh, I've done a lot of civil disobedience for peace and mm -hmm. against nuclear war or specific wars like the Iraq War. I don't know if I'm a pacifist or not. I don't know if... I feel conflicted there. Are you a pacifist? Do you believe in never you know, I don't, any I don't violence? know if I like that label, but I, I, I'm pretty close to it. Like what you know, if, for example, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in favor of what's happening in Ukraine. I don't like the arms sales to Ukraine. And I, I think that... I know. So we, I think my understanding is the budget, I think, is $20 billion in aid is going to Ukraine. About half of that is going to arms of various sorts. Logistics, javelin missiles, and... You might say these people need to defend themselves, and they do. And on some level, you know, they do need to defend themselves. But on another level, on a deeper level, I feel like the more we propagate these violent models of conflict resolution, yeah. the more we're going to just exacerbate the longer-term problem. And Gandhi is very famous for saying, and this might be idealistic, it probably is idealistic, that the best way to respond to invader is to lay down your body and say, you can kill me too. You know, I'm not going to resist you. But lay down your body in defense of the people around you. You know, if all of us just nonviolently resisted a violent occupier, the world would end instantly because all the people who are invading would be so ashamed of themselves, they'd just go back home. What do you think? Well, Is that idealistic? <laughs> you'd, it's probably I think, a idealistic. You'd, I think you'd have to get, yeah, I mean, you'd have to get the people to be able to lay it down. It's yeah. so inculcated in us to fight that I feel like it's inculcated in, in me. I wonder, okay, in World War II, would I... Wouldn't I have wanted to fight Hitler? Yeah. So, but but my biggest issue with most wars is that we don't try hard enough not to fight. Yeah, it's true. And so we just perpetuate because it's easier just to go to, to give go fight instead of yeah. instead of compromise yeah. or um, you know. And I, I I'm probably I don't, I'm not hundred very incredibly educated on this, but I have felt for a long time that NATO. NATO needs to not, I mean, if, if Russia, the Russian Federation came to Mexico and said, hey, started mm -hmm. wooing Mexico, we would be up in arms. Sure. Like so, the of course, crisis, right? exactly. And that was Cuba, a little yeah. island off the coast. It yeah. wasn't even attached, right? Yeah. And I feel like we baited him. It's, it was a power struggle by, you know, wooing Ukraine into NATO. And a lot of people will say, well, Ukraine gets to do what it wants, and it does, but we didn't have to... Uh, we could have had a discussion. <laughs> I think more yeah. about it uh, before in the in, in the last decade or so. Yeah, and and I don't I don't think what you're saying is is fanciful. I think there are a lot of people who have studied this issue for a long time. I have an old professor from the University of Chicago whose videos went viral. This guy named John Mearsheimer, who's featured in the New Yorker about eight or so years ago when the Euromaidan revolution occurred. So there was a revolt in the Ukraine. So there was a revolution in Ukraine in 2014 where they took down the duly elected president who was pro-Russian with U.S. support and replaced him with someone who was more supportive of the West and wanted to create stronger ties with the West. And one of my former, former professors at the University of Chicago, John Mearsheimer, he's, he's not a political guy. I mean, he, he doesn't really align himself with any political party. I mean, he's honestly more seen as a right-winger than a left-winger, but he said, this is the United States 
meddling in foreign affairs in a way that's really problematic and it's going to lead to a conflict in the future and it has today it doesn't mean that you know russia has clean hands in this but it does mean that if we really are serious about creating a more peaceful world we have to look at ourselves too and yeah and we, we don't unfortunately look at ourselves i i feel like america america doesn't ask why yeah they just they just say that easy like oh Putin they're afraid of our freedom as Bush said about uh, the uh, Saddam or no it was Osama bin Laden he's afraid mm-hmm. of our freedom but that wasn't the reason yeah it isn't or he's jealous of our freedom yeah. it was because of the imperialism of of the United States for years on the Saudi Arabian continent and around the the Middle East but we never. So we don't learn unless yeah. we ask and discuss and even not even talk sides like who's wrong and who's right. Let's figure out how everyone can live yeah. peacefully. That probably sounds idealistic. Um, yeah. I was going to just... And I think say, the point you just made is so important. <laughs> even if you were a, a nationalist white supremacist who didn't care about brown people in foreign countries, you still have to have an accurate understanding of the situation just to make good predictions. Right, because there are a lot of neoconservatives who probably didn't care too much about Iraqis, who because they had a flawed model of the world, they just thought, oh, these people just hate freedom. You know, they they hate. They thought, oh, it's going to be such a walk in the park to come to Iraq because this is not about colonialism. It's not about imperialism. It's not about all these things it actually was about. It's just about the fact that you have a few dictators who just hate freedom, and they thought we'd be greeted by liberators, and they just made a wrong prediction yeah. because they didn't have an accurate conception of the world. So, well, but it's pretty. I mean, it was pretty. It's pretty racist because Osama. Bin Laden was hugely rich. He had he freedom. I mean, he had more freedom than a lot of Americans Absolutely. do. So that kind of yeah, it didn't make any that sense. just yeah, that was that was. I don't know if Bush truly believed that or just wanted us to believe it. But the fact that we yeah. believed it. I mean, I read a Time Magazine article that said it taught. It was an interview with a widow of somebody from nine eleven of a, f- a firefighter, I think, who died nine eleven, hmm. and it was very moving. But the journalist noted that she had um, things around against Saddam Hussein somehow. And the journalist never mentioned that Saddam Hussein was not really the perpetrator of Mm -hmm. killing her husband, didn't correct the reader at all, Mm -hmm. just let it go. So the reader would think, oh yeah, Saddam Hussein bombed uh, bombed us on 9-11. So the media was was really, I was very disenchanted with the media. Then that was sort of the, I don't know if it was quite the beginning. There was, an, there were other things that I started questioning what I'd been taught and what yeah. I, what I'd been, uh, just, I'm sure you've read this book, but uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. No, I haven't read that. It's such Who's a good it book. John somebody, hmm. and he, uh, it was basically about America going into other countries and subverting them mm-hmm. either, uh, first they try economically and then if that didn't work, then they send in the, yeah. the, the, the troops. Sure. Yeah. So, or, or, you know, protect a side. It's a really good book. Yeah. Highly recommend. Oh. No, I, this is kind of, um, not directly on point, but have you seen this video that went viral? I think in the last day of captive Russian soldiers getting beaten up with like bags of their head and a couple of them are shot and it's, no, it's gone viral. And it's, that's horrible. So this is, the, the problem with this cycle of violence is that... Are people cheering this video? A lot of people were. Oh. You know, I mean, some people are saying it's horrible and, and, and not acceptable. And the Ukrainian government did take an official position because these are war crimes. I mean, you can't do this. Even if this is an invading army 
the video, I mean, I don't want to describe in too much gory detail because it's pretty disturbing. I did watch a little bit of it, but they put bags over these soldiers' heads and they're clearly just defeated and prone and, mm-hmm. and they're just like smashing their heads over and over again and they shoot mm-hmm. two of them in the legs mm-hmm. and are like screaming all these curse words at them. And this is the best propaganda you could possibly use to encourage the Russians to continue what they're doing, right? Yeah. And, and this kind of inevitably happens when you use violent resistance. Even if you do end the war in the short term, you create these long-seated grievances. I mean, I know this because... You know, my family's history is about these grievances. My grandfather, 50 years after the Civil War in China had ended in 1949, he was still furious to the point that he would shout when he was talking about communists. Like he wanted to hurt and kill mm-hmm. communists because he'd seen so many communists kill his friends, his brothers. Communists took his family to a camp. And violent methods just replicate these same systems and patterns. So it might be idealistic to lay down your bodies and just say, we're not going to fight. But what we've been doing hasn't been working either. Yeah. So maybe it's actually the more practical alternative. So yeah. I don't know though. It's hard because I think in a fight, and, and this is true even within movements, and, and it's true about emotional fighting, fighting too. Conflicts cause people to take sides, and you know, if you don't do the things that your side wants you to do to hurt the other side, you're immediately seen as disloyal, <laughs> and it's it's a really problematic human tendency that unfortunately I think is very deeply ingrained in our psychology because we're, tr- we're a tribal species we're a tribal species yeah and that's chimpanzees how we do survive very similar things honestly yeah you know jane goodall has written about this Franz de has written about this they're amazing creatures they're so beautiful and gentle in some contexts and bonobos for example are are very peaceful species in no small part because they're women-led you know it's like these coalitions of women that prevent the women from getting involved in all these fights but you know common chimpanzees are, are very aggressive and violent species and when they form into groups you know, the expectation is when we go fight, you fight with us. And if you're left behind, we might kill you too, if you decide not to come with us. You know? That's why in everyday life, I feel like the the things that we do in everyday life are so important. Uh, and the choice to not be violent to yeah. a fly or to the person who you just cut, got, cut you off on the freeway. It's just, in, it's important. It's not easy, but it's important. Yeah. Yeah, there's this concept of prefigurative politics and political science and activism. The idea is, I mean, it's the same one that Gandhi had, that you kind of have to be the change you want to see in the world. So on a small scale, if we want to see a world where Russia and the United States and China are not fighting, we have to choose not to fight ourselves. Yeah. That if there's some conflict, ask yourself, okay, is, is, am I setting a good model for the world? Because yeah. what I do, when we add it all up and multiply it and exponentially amplify it through social media and the media and all the political systems we're operating under, the fights that we're involved in can be amplified to the point that we have global conflicts that are, can't be resolved. And on the other hand, if we're peaceful and nonviolent and resolve the conflicts we have in a compassionate and humble way, then maybe there's hope for the world too. How did you get involved in anti-war activism? Was there like a trigger moment or a catalyst for you? I asked my dad when I was 16 to take me to Battery Park in New York City to go to a... It was a huge... Apparently, it was a huge, huge protest. It mm. would have been in maybe 80, 1980, uh, maybe 79. And um, that was, I think, opened my mind to the peace movement. I, I, I read a lot. What were they protesting in 1979? Was it Iran? Uh, no, it was, it was in general peace, uh, no uh, nuclear weapons. Okay, so it was an anti-nuclear protest. Yeah, okay. yeah, anti-nuke, yeah. yeah. So, Which is a very powerful movement in the 70s. Yep, sure. uh-huh. and, and the 80s too, yeah. Because yeah. Reagan wanted Star Wars and everything mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. 80s, so that was, that was an issue. Yeah. And they were building up instead of yeah. 
having fewer. Star Wars um, meaning a missile defense system, not not the right. movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, the movie did. No, he the movie came Mark in Hamill. the seventies. Like, yeah, right. that's right. Maybe he wanted Mark Hamill too. And what's what's her name? The I'm so bad. Um, Carrie, the, Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher. Yeah. Um, what's the character? Princess, Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Big confession. I've never actually seen Star Wars. That's Terrible so human being. I'm sorry. <laughs> Brittany right next to me is like cringing. She's about to walk out of the room, but never seen it. So I have to confess. I, that's the reason I don't know any of these actors, or their characters, but I know enough to know that Star Wars was also in the 1980s. It's probably why they picked that, that fan, that glib actually, name. That's a good question. I wonder if Star Wars, cause I mean, for those Star Wars was like a missile defense system. Yeah. It essentially prevented the United States from being threatened by Russian nukes, but which would have encouraged the Russians to basically shoot first and build even more nuclear weapons. They because if if you have a missile defense system, then we have to build you know ten more nuclear warheads. And the more nuclear warheads there are, the greater the chance is whether it's due to an accident, a stolen nuclear warhead, that an entire city goes up in a big nuclear mushroom cloud. Right? I think it was also a question of whether it was actually work. It, but you're right; worked, it would yeah. it would tip the balance of mutually assured destruction, sure. which would be that if one country used it, then the other country's going to use it. So now no countries are going to use it. That's, that was the idea that's, that's the idea that's kept us safe for so long. And I was more afraid of an accident, a Mm -hmm. nuclear accident. And Helen Caldicott was a, uh, she started physicians for nuclear. mm, I can't believe I, Oh, I I know this group. Yeah. They're, they're now called like physicians for social responsibility, right? They changed their name. I think, um, Yes, probably. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm getting mixed up between PCRM, Physicians Committee for uh-huh. Responsible yeah, yeah. Medicine, which is an animal group, but and a health group. But um, yeah, that that's definitely Helen Caldicott. I just revered her, and uh, she 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 very much talked about how terrible a nuclear war would be, and would ex- describe it in detail. Yeah, this is, I'm actually Googling this right now. I think it's Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War that eventually became Physicians for Social Responsibility and they won the Nobel Prize. Oh, I did, I'd forgotten I, that, I think but they yeah. they won the Nobel yeah. Peace Prize yeah. in, uh, what year was it? I don't even know what year was it. Yeah, but they did. In 1985, they won the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, I heard her speak about five years ago, and she said, she basically was talking to this audience of, um, you know, West Side liberal Los Angelinos, Mm -hmm. and she was angry. And Mm. she was angry because she was saying, I'm going to die soon, and you need to take up the mantle. Somebody needs to do it. Mm. Somebody has to lead because she's in her mid 70s or something now. And I was. I was impressed again, once again, with her. I knew that I didn't want to take up the mantle, even though it's so. And I, I was questioning about myself. You have taken up the mantle. How but, many times have you been arrested, <laughs> Alexandra? If you haven't taken up the mantle, who has? Well, not for nuclear, a, nuclear okay. against nuclear weapons. Sure. Yes, yeah. exactly. I was just really. If she was right, nobody yeah. was stepping up. Hmm. Nobody has stepped up yeah. actually, because it's not the issue of the moment. It we really feel isn't. safe, but we're actually not yeah. at all. Yeah, because even though we reduced the nuclear stockpile tremendously, as we said earlier, I mean, still plenty of nukes to cause nuclear winter. And yeah, and smaller nuclear ones. Nuclear winter. And- I mean, we don't talk about this that much, but I remember in the in the eighties, I mean, there was real concern not just about nuclear war causing a catastrophic conflict, but the the end of human civilization as you know it. Because if you put up, I mean, scientists have have analyzed this and shown that if you 
blow up enough nuclear warheads at the same time. And it's, it's not even our entire stockpile. I think it's like half our stockpile would be more than sufficient to send enough soot into the air that it would cause basically a global cooling event that would freeze the entire planet and create potentially a new ice age. And, you know, we didn't do too well in the last ice age. I'm not sure we won another one. Right. And the missiles now are so much stronger than the ones that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And a lot of them are hypersonic which is scary too. They go super fast, they so you can't, fast, so, you, so it's hard, less time to react. Yeah, so the concern is it creates a greater incentive for a first strike, right? Because if the missiles are so fast, the other side doesn't even have a chance to respond. Then both sides, at a moment's notice, when they when they get scared that something could yeah. be happening, they'll be tempted to just, let's send our nukes in too, because we don't know how many hypersonic missiles. And Russia, just a couple of weeks ago, was bragging about how they had shot their first hypersonic missile and saying how this is a wonderful technological marvel, but it's making all of us much less safe. Yeah. But so, so what caused you to want to go to that protest at Battery Park, though? Was there something that you know, I was, your imagination about this anti-war <laughs> movement? Well, I was very involved with saving energy, solar okay. panels and things. And so I don't remember exactly. And there was just a connection between that. And I probably was reading a lot. Yeah. And um, What year yeah. was Three Mile Island? That was in the early 80s? No, late 70s. Three Mile Island. 79, I think. 79. 79. Okay. So that was around that time. Yes. Did that influence you? Yes, Probably, probably. Okay. Although my first, yeah, no, that probably did very much. Yeah, yeah I was scared. Uh, Tell people what Three Mile Island was for those who don't remember it, or I mean, to the extent you know you can remember some of the details. It was a nuclear power plant on the East Coast, mm-hmm. and it basically had a meltdown. Yeah. And it was the nearest that we got to a, a nuclear all this radiation going into the air. They were able to cap it. Mm -hmm. Nobody died, I don't think. And um, yeah, and so it was, there was a movie made about it, which I highly recommend, starring Jane Fonda. Mm. And the, of course, the government cover-up and the, people didn't know what was going on. It was different than social media today, but I think we still have the same confusion. Like when you talk about that Russian videotape, my Mm -hmm. first thing is, is that real? Is that real? Yeah, we don't or know. is that is that the Russians making the Ukrainians look bad so that the yeah. Russian they'll get more Russian loyalty or loyalty from from China or whoever? Uh, so I, it's hard to know what to believe, which yeah. is why you have to have a really strong moral core. Yeah, and and you have to be willing to dive a little deeper because even the New York Times, I mean. We just talked about the Iraq war. Iraq war. I, I love the New York Times for the record. I think they've done some of the best investigative journalism. They've worked with us on a number of occasions. And some of the stuff they've done and just calling out the U.S. Army for it's, it's lies. I mean, so, you know, like what happened in Afghanistan when we were withdrawing their claim of striking a, you know, potential terrorist threat that was going to bomb the, the, the exit point for a lot of the refugees and military um, members of the military were exiting Afghanistan. It turned out to be an, an aid worker who's working for a Western nonprofit. And if not for on-the-ground journalists who dug much deeper and looked at all the surveillance videotape, talked to all, all the people who witnessed what, what the guy was up to and what he had actually done that day, no one would have known. And subsequently, the U.S. military admitted, yeah, this is, this is a mistake. We killed an innocent person and, and his six children in a car, not mm-hmm. a terrorist. Mm-hmm. And when you have incidents yeah. like that, I mean, it's hard to trust the U.S. government. But it's also hard to trust the New York Times when... They, they were on board with the we- weapons of mass destruction narrative back in 2003. Oh, my gosh. And they gosh. were pushing it so hard. I had luckily, I had, before um, Iraq mm-hmm. uh, war started, after 9-11, so it was probably 2002, 
The Iraq War started in two, March of 2003, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so it took a while for us to figure out what we were going to do after 9-11, but a year and a half. But um, I had heard, I had listened, gone to a talk by Scott Ritter, who hmm. was a uh, nuclear, he was a, a military guy, conservative guy, and he had been part of the checking nuclear weapons. I don't know if he's part of the AEI. A, the atomic energy, you know, they go and they check different mm -hmm, countries mm -hmm. to see what kind of nuclear weapons yep, they have. Yep, yep. But anyway, he spoke and he spoke, I believed him that Iraq didn't have nuclear weapons. I just, mm. uh, and I just, and didn't have weapons of mass destruction. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and I believe that, that they didn't, they didn't invade, they didn't uh, cause 9-11. Sure. And so I, I, when I started protesting the Iraq war, I, hardly anybody in my friend group was on agreed with me yeah or that they thought that I shouldn't be protesting it because it was giving low morale to soldiers mm -hmm. who would be going in there yeah so uh and it's hard it's hard to know because yeah <laughs> yeah the, the shift in our culture in wartime is, is terrifying and it happens over and over again and oh, and gosh. Even though we the have shift the lessons of, values. of history, yeah, the shift in values. It's yeah. crazy. The fact that I mean, people after nine eleven, they were okay with cops stopping people for no reason except for that they wore a turban. Mm -hmm. It was okay, and I understand. And not only that, if you if you protested or if you advocated against it, you're seen as a traitor, disloyal yeah. to our country. Yeah. yeah, you were considered. I mean, I don't. Nobody ever arrested me on the grounds of being a traitor, mm -hmm. but. Um, they just arrested me for, you know, yeah. civil disobedience. But, um, I mean, it's, it's hard to know because if I'd been in an airport, I was in an airport and there were folks who were dressed in Arab clothing and maybe women in burqas. And I was freaked out. Hmm. I didn't know what to do because I, wow. I was checking myself going, Alexander, you're just assuming that just because sure. they're from a country in the Middle East that, they're going to bomb. That's sure. Ah, but yeah, I felt that for sure. I felt that well, because it was such a part of the narrative at the time after nine 11. I mean, I actually just, I don't know why this story just came up in the prior podcast, but I was just hanging out with Moby and I was, um, on nine 11, I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts in a class when the world trade center got hit and professor walks in the room and he's got very serious somber look on his face. And he says, I think we need to cancel class and all of you should go in the lobby and see what's going on. And we all go out in the lobby and we see on the television, and it's on live, I think it was probably CNN, the smoking tower. And, you know, the chyron underneath it says, you know, airplane smashes in the World Trade Center, towers, suspected terrorist attack. And within a few minutes, like it was minutes, it wasn't that long, the entire tower collapses. And we're just thinking, oh my God, I mean, that's thousands of people were in that tower. Um, and you're even seeing images of these people jumping off the towers. It's like, it was mm -hmm. so disturbing. Um, and this is, but this is liberal, progressive Massachusetts. It's, you know, Cambridge, very highly educated folks who, who understand the history of the American government and how often the American government has used, you know, supposed aggression against us as a pretext to do all sorts of horrible things, you know, in Vietnam and Korea and so on. Um, but I, I remember just saying, and I'm not saying I'm some sort of hero because I didn't, there's no ideology or philosophy behind this, but I just remember saying audibly to, with a group of kids and students around me, 
you know, I wonder what the U.S. government's going to do in response. I'm a little concerned. And people just looked at me with such contempt and anger. And I think someone even audibly said, you know, you just need to get out of here. And just, just for saying that, you know, that's what happens. And I, I think, look, I am as on board the Ukrainian resistance as anyone. I think what Russia and Putin are doing is awful. But I'm also terrified about what the military industrial complex and what the U.S. government could possibly do with this to aggravate the situation and, and cost not only American lives, but Ukrainian lives and Russian lives and the lives of people all over the world. Because a lot of the people in power are not thinking about everybody. They're not thinking about the long term. They're not thinking about future generations. They're thinking, and sometimes it's not even malicious or intentional. It's just, this is my mindset because I've been in the military my entire life. I make lots of money when there are more bombs that are dropped, more planes that are built. And my mindset is when we fight, it's good for me. Yeah. And it's good for the country. And so let's fight some more because those fucking Russians deserve it. And that mentality leads Ukrainian soldiers to start beating captive, completely you know, defenseless Russian soldiers to death. It leads the American people to start talking honestly about regime change in Russia. And even Biden himself a couple of days ago was, you know, it's like apparently an off the cuff remark that was not intended, but he's caught up in this. He's saying this man, and you know, the funny thing is like, it's, it's not even the statement he made. It's, it's the anger and the contempt he has that's associated with it. This idea that we have to fight. That's what we do as Americans. And, and I think we have to get beyond this idea that we have to fight and get to a place where we build. Let's not fight, let's build. And building requires working together. So, I don't know. Yeah, after 9-11, I, I actually felt, I felt like, what's wrong with me? Because I didn't feel this deep anger, yeah, this well. deep, uh, I should say, desire to get back at yeah. You were I also the nicest felt... person I've ever met in the world. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Oh, so it worked. Do you ever feel any it anger? It worked. My... Like, yes, I think someone I... could probably punch you in the face <laughs> and you would not feel deep anger towards them. It was more that I felt grateful that we huh. lived in a, that I wasn't hurt that this, I don't know what it was that I felt. Where were you on 9-11? I was driving to the gym down the hill and I heard something on the radio. We didn't have TV. Sure. I, I've never had a tv so uh -huh. now we watch stuff online but sure. back then we just I just had computers and i remember calling ian my husband and saying something's going on and so i went to the gym and there was the, the first tower had been hit and my sister called me mm -hmm. and we talked a little bit and then i went back to working out not really clear what was going Darn on, on. Yeah. Wasn't really in the fully. early stages, we thought it might have been an accident. No one really knew. It was when yeah. the second tower was hit, everyone thought, okay, that's too much of a coincidence. Yeah. This has to be a terrorist attack. And I just felt more like empathy and sadness sure. rather than anger. I think yeah. that was it. It wasn't that, uh, and gratitude that, that, you know, we were safe. Mm -hmm. You know, there was that too, of course, sure. that our whole country wasn't engulfed in war. And mm -hmm. I don't know. I felt like a fish out of water. Yeah. That's for sure. Mm. Why do you think your reaction is so different? Is it just because, I mean, I think you are just temperamentally different than the vast majority of human beings. Like I've never seen you express any sort of resentment towards anyone, <laughs> I really haven't, which is kind of a, a miracle because uh, I mean, you're like an angel uh, to me. I'm sure I do. <laughs> Have you? I don't remember well, you ever saying anything resentful to anyone or about it. I noticed that when I'm not feeling secure with myself sure. if i'm unhappy with myself that's when i my feelings yeah, about other people 
I think that's like, true of a lot of us. But if I feel comfortable with myself, which yeah. I pretty much do, yeah. and yeah. they say that your 50s is your happiest years, <laughs> and I actually, which I used to think 50s, that's like you're dead. <laughs> that's dead. But I actually do feel like I feel uh, very happy and secure and sure. um, and confident. And uh, so that might be why it's not because I'm a uh-huh. good person. It's just because I have a f- strong foundation, sure. but, but rock that like foundation and all that anger is going to come yeah, out. We'll see. We'll see. Um, yeah. I've known you for you for almost 10 years now. Yeah. I still haven't seen it. We'll find, <laughs> when that moment comes, I'll come back on the podcast and say, now I know there's one have, thing that causes <laughs> anger in Alexandria and this is it. And I do notice that when I like watch a video haystack. of an animal being right. abused or if I've been on a farm, yeah, I feel like I make a face like I'm like mm. this and I'm watching the video because I feel sick inside. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's anger. Mm-hmm. I, um, I want to I hear more about that journey to animal rights from because you, you've done obviously anti-war protest. Um, what, what is it? You've done environmental protests and you've mm-hmm. done animal I'm very rights involved protests. with the environment, of course. Yeah, and, but then. I think your first arrest was an anti-war protest. Is that right? Yes, okay, in so 1987. So tell me what your thought process was in doing that because, I mean, you're an actor... Most actors aren't getting involved in activism, certainly 20 years ago. Nowadays, I think it, there's a little bit more of an activism mindset in Hollywood, but back then, not so much. So what's your thought process in deciding to do that and, and just describe what happened on that first arrest? Well, I actually, when I came to Hollywood, I was 18. And when I was 23, I started an organization called Young Artists United that was oh. made up of people in the entertainment industry, not just actors, but okay. people behind the scenes, producers, camera people, grips, whatever, who wanted to um, have a positive influence on the world because it was the time of uh, Nan- on other young people. So we were all young and we wanted to have a positive influence on other young people because Nancy Reagan's husband, Ronald Reagan, was president. And she had this campaign as all wives of presidents do they choose they pick a thing Mm -hmm. and hers was just say no to drugs and we felt that 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 was just too easy Mm -hmm. and so young artists united was an organization where people in an in in the hollywood in hollywood either talked about complicated issues kids are dealing with from their own personal experience. So I talked a lot about eating disorders Mm. without judgment and without any kind of do this or do that, just sharing, just communicating. The only thing we came out on is not drinking and driving. Mothers Against Drunk Driving was just coming out then, and we we were an advocate for them. So we did say, no, that's not cool. But we didn't say don't do drugs or don't don't uh, have sex or anything like that. We just said, these, you make the choice, but here's my experience. Basically, that was it. Um, and we also raised money for organizations that help kids, and, uh, and we created PSAs to educate people about issues. So that was Young Artists United. So I was in, my friends were activists. When I, when I became an actress, my mother thought, oh, she's in Hollywood, so corrupting. My friends- Were good they, people. You know, I probably drank less than some kid in Ohio. Wow. You know, they didn't do happen? drugs. And I mean, just, were these all actors? A lot of them were actors, but a lot of them were producers or directors okay. or, but they were young. We were in our twenties. And, and how did you get connected with all these people who were um, defying s- the conventional wisdom? I started it with my friend Daniel, who had been uh, uh, he, in a, on a movie I did called American Flyers in 1984, mm. and he lived in Colorado. We we were sitting in a in a hot tub, and he said, "When we're rich and famous, we're gonna we're gonna change the world. We're gonna do a lot of good things." And and then I think when I came home, 
we decided, wait, why are we waiting till we're rich and famous? (laughs) Let's just do it now. So we sent out a hundred letters because back then you had to send everything out by mail to all these actors and people in like Rob Lowe and Heather Locklear and stuff. And a lot of them showed up to our first meeting at a hotel. That's cool. And where we said, this is what we want to do. Yeah, that's great. And I had also been involved with, uh, and just gone with my friend Eric Stoltz, who'd been invited. I hadn't been invited, but Jane Fonda and Tom Hayden were starting a group of activists in Hollywood. And Mm. I had, I was invited by Eric. So I became involved with that. Mm. That was more political. But, and so that's who my friends, Mm. a lot of my friends from today are people that I met act activating when I was in my twenties. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, um, yeah, my mom didn't have to worry about me getting into trouble sure. that way, at least with drugs That's and awesome. alcohol things. But I just got in trouble in other ways. Sure. Now there's still a big jump between that letter writing campaigns, getting yeah. actors together to do yeah. PSAs to getting arrested in anti-war protests. So just what is the story behind that first arrest? And what was your, what was your feeling in it? Um, I had, I was, had been on the great peace march across America and I'd gone, walked to Vegas, which took, um, five and a half weeks. And then this is from California to Vegas. It was from Los Angeles to Washington DC. But I, I came back when we hit Vegas, which took five and a half weeks of walking. And, um, and what year was this? Uh, 86, 86. So I, um, there'd been a, I think we'd maybe stopped at the nuclear test site or I'd heard about it. So I went back the next year because I felt bad that I hadn't gone the whole way across America. Mm -hmm. And so I started going to the test site Mm. many times a year, uh, protesting. Why did you stop in Vegas? I stopped in Vegas actually because my bulimia started reared its its head as when I got to Vegas when I got to civilization again, and it freaked me out so much that I thought I need to go home. And really, what it was is that I was back in civilization, and all my old stuff came back triggers exactly. And probably if I'd gone through Vegas, and I maybe would have been, but I had been all good, and I didn't get abstinent from being bulimic until I was 28. So I was 21 at the 20, uh, 23 at the time. So it took another five years, but I've I've, I've seen, I think, or maybe read something you wrote about that. Do you think that was triggered by the modeling and the acting industry? Was that Oh, my bulimia? Yeah. No, it was triggered by being an American girl. girl. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't at all. And I decided to go into the modeling industry just for validation that I was okay. And just, course i threw myself into the worst you sure, know possible industry possible yeah. and left modeling because my bulimia got so bad and when i went to acting it was actually really freeing really? because they don't they don't they're not looking for you to be That's 35 tough. 25 35 in wow. terms of your measurements okay you're okay different sizes you didn't have to be exactly sure i mean there's still an ethic of well there was then much less now being sort of slender but there wasn't there wasn't the the one body type that you're sure. supposed to fit into. Okay. So yeah, it was acting was very freeing okay. in that way. Um, it was just uh, yeah, pretty okay. much every woman I know um, has That's dealt with some struggled with either self image, body image, and then dealt with food or um, yeah, at some point in their life, it might not have had a grip on them like it did for me for twelve years. Yeah. But yeah, you know. Naomi Wolf wrote an amazing book. Um, on this subject, or at least there's a chapter in it that's about, you know, she describes a plague. Is this beauty? 
um, this it's a beauty myth. Beauty myth. Yeah, yeah Apriya told me to read that, yeah, and so yeah, book. I did. Yeah, and Name of Wolf has obviously become a very controversial figure since then because right. she's now because she's like anti-vax or something. Well, I don't she what doesn't. She's done. But she, I know she's she, become like right wing. Yeah, she's anti-vax and she wrote a book about climate change, but I think some of, I don't know. And I want to reserve judgment because, yeah. you know, I'm sure she's really interesting. Maybe she'd she have is. her on the podcast. She's, Maybe she's that brilliant. Would be I mean, good. she's smart regardless yeah. of whether she's controversial. And nowadays, I mean, everything's yeah. going through so many distorted filters. Who knows what the truth is? Right. But, I know but she wrote it. That book was really Beauty excellent. Beauty is an amazing book. And I think it's the first chapter that talks about this epidemic and she doesn't describe that it's bulimia or, or anorexia she just says there's an epidemic that's killing and she actually uses boys instead of girls it's selectively targeting the boys and she just takes all the statistics i don't remember the exact statistics but 20 percent of them are wasting away you know um like many of the others are, are psychologically just terrorized by it and you know and and we have a national mobilization and she just asked the question what will we do in response to this condition if all of our young boys are wasting away for these inexplicable purposes and you know, the conclusion is very clearly it's a national emergency. We have to right. change something about our society now because, you know, we can't allow 20% of our boys to all waste away. And the same thing was happening to girls and no one really talked about it too much. It was something that was shameful and just blamed on the individual girls instead of asking the deeper questions about what our society is triggering this. You know, so it's, it's a good book. Yeah, really it's a, I highly it. recommend it. That's a good book. Um, so yeah, that's why I left, yeah. left the great peace march. And, and, okay. and then I did, you know, I did a movie dragnet right after. So oh. in a way it was good because it, it was good for my career. It was with Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd. And so, oh. uh, there was some good things about coming home, but that's, that led me that I think that so you were feeling... able to do that movie because you came home. Early. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how were Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd? Did they know where you came from? Did they know you just came from a peace march? Oh, no, no, I, you no, didn't, I talk didn't talk about, about my. You didn't yeah. talk about that on the. Slide. I don't think so. I didn't. Okay. Yeah, they were so much. They felt so much older than I. Really? You know, yeah. and I was. Yeah. So, um, but I, that's one of the reasons I started. I was going to the. It was it was unfinished business for okay. me, so I started going to the nuclear test site and and the, and the first time I got um, arrested. Uh, yeah, they. I stayed. I. The the fine was I think twenty five dollars, hmm. and peace people we don't pay fines because sure. it goes to the government that builds a nuclear weapon. So I spent two and a half days in jail, huh. then and uh, with. So what inspired you to do that? To get arrested? Was there something oh. in particular? Was there was there a community? Mm. Were there trainings? I mean, what was? I did someone ask you if they? Could I did get take a training, so okay. I must have decided. Maybe it was just the next next step. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I can't. I can't. I was. I, I was alone. Yeah. I don't think I went with anybody. Um, so you just went on your own from California? My sister's gone with me. So, okay. um, yeah, it's funny. I, th I think I went by myself. And for years, I would just go by myself. I had a routine. I would, huh. you know, fly there, stay at the Golden Nugget, which was uh, which is cheaper, sure. rent a car. It, you know, it was um, like a 45-minute drive to the nuclear yeah. test site from Las Vegas. Were you not concerned this is going to affect your career at all? No, I don't think I was concerned. And I think that might be a, the bubble of being, oh, you know, young, white, privileged. My career was ascending. Uh -huh. Also in Hollywood, that was liberal, uh -huh. very liberal then. And actors got arrested all the time for things like drunk driving <laughs> or, yeah. or drugs. So yeah. for me, because I was, you know, at a peace protest yeah, like and Martin Sheen, yeah. you know, Martin Sheen was an actor who also was vocally, he was very vocal about 
peace yeah. issues then. Huh. And he had gotten arrested at some point. Really? I didn't know Martin Sheen has gotten arrested. Yeah. Yeah, huh. he is. And his Catholic faith is very strong. Yeah. And it, that's where his peace oh, yeah. uh, ethic comes from. Yeah. Some of the Catholic protesters and activists are they're badasses. They're so oh, hardcore. They're such the Catholic a workers. I, when yeah, I was protesting the... The Iraq War, I was arrested with the Catholic workers. They have an incredible discipline, yeah. and that's the organization that I hung out with to protest the Iraq War. Yeah. Yeah, when I was getting ready for trial in North Carolina, you know, most of my friends and fellow activists were saying, oh, I'm so sorry, this is, you're going through this, and you know, this is such a tragedy, I can't believe the government is doing this, and I have a, a good friend, I don't even say who it is, but he's a longtime animal rights activist, a senior leader at a very important organization. Um, who's from the Catholic workers movement. He's got a history of doing anti-war protests with the Catholic workers. Yeah. And he just writes me an email and says like, good for you. It's about time you did something worthwhile. You know, something like that. Because <laughs> the expectation in the Catholic workers movement is you don't actually understand the issue until you've actually sacrificed for it. Right. So it's, it's just yeah. kind of a rite of passage for all the activists to get arrested. And when you get into that culture, I mean, DXC has kind of created this culture to some extent too whether to our benefit or our detriment. And a lot of people don't like it because they say, you know, Carol Adams of the world would say, what's going on here? Why are all these young people sending themselves off to mass open rescues and getting arrested and risking their freedom? Um, but the reality is, I mean, whether it's a civil well, no rights other organi- No or- other organization's doing it. And I believe that yeah, every, every issue needs to have all facets and needs to have the radical wing yeah. and the, the letter writers. No, and the key thing is, I, I think that what Carol Adams doesn't understand is it's already in people's hearts. <laughs> Whether it's the Catholic workers' against, movement, Kat, but Carol Adams is the one who's all about patriarchy and against patriarchy. But why would she be against people going getting arrested? It's a good that question. I don't know. Judge. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have her on the podcast. We actually, when she wrote a blog post, post condemning us for being a cult, yeah. Just a few months later, I mean, I we tried to get her to come to ALC and said we'd love to give you a featured keynote address to talk about why you don't like this. And she ignored us and was not willing to talk to anyone, which wow. is a good sign to me of just how legitimate the criticism is because legitimate critics are willing to have conversations about them and are willing to engage with their interlocutors. Well, if you're criticizing and attacking someone and you can't be open, you can't have a transparent conversation that says something about you. So yeah. um, Carol's done incredible work in so many regards. But I think like a lot of the that generation of activists, the notion of direct action for animals for some reason, is a bridge too far. And I hate to, I, I don't want to make myself seem morally superior to her because I'm certainly not. She's a brilliant woman who understands a lot of issues that I don't understand. I mean, she wrote one of the most important books, The Intersection of Sexism and, and Speciesism, uh, Sexual Politics of Meat. But I do think there's an older generation of activists who have a certain degree of, I mean, there's no way to put it, but, but speciesism in terms of the tactics we can use. Um, you know, on paper, we say that all life on this earth is is important and should be defended. We say that discrimination against, you know, treating a dog differently than a pig or even a human child is, is wrong in the same way treating a Chinese person different than a white, white person is wrong. And if we have these these words on pieces of paper that supposedly inform our values, when it comes when the rubber hits the road and we ask, okay, what sort of tactics can we use? The older generation of activists, especially for farm animals, just does not see direct action as a legitimate tactic. They think it's too far. Do <laughs> That's so weird to me. It seems like for me, having been in the environmental movement, the peace movement, um, and now, and then I, you know, I registered voters for years and went to uh, South Africa to register voters there before the first fair and free election. 
animal rights, for some reason, humans, they put this in this entirely different category mm-hmm. and act like the rules don't apply to us, that we are somehow... Ah. Yeah. May I bring up a guest that you had on? Please. Who was wonderful on your show, Brianna Joy Gray. Yeah. She's brilliant. She's really amazing. Really smart. I enjoyed the conversation with her so much. Mm-hmm. She really made me think. Had to look up a lot of stuff that sure. she referenced, like the third pillar and Clinton's third pillar. Or, there were mm-hmm. several things that, historically that I had to look up. Sure. She criticized uh, the Democratic Party for moving too incrementally. And then when you talked to her about animal rights, she felt that we were too radical and that we were pushing people too fast. And I thought, whoa, wait a second. Can't you see the parallel here? Incremental is what you were just complaining about, yet you're saying that the problem with animal rights activists is they're moving too fast mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. they're pushing people into areas that make them feel bad about themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, hold on, lady. You're saying you're not, you're complaining that the Democrats are too nice and don't want to upset people, but yet you're now saying that animal rights activists sure. are, are it, it just... Uh, and she's so smart, but she didn't see at all yeah. her blind spot there. What do you think? I think that's true. And I think whenever you're in a position of privilege, incrementalism feels safer and more comfortable because you're not the one whose life is being threatened. And it's just a natural human reaction yeah. to any sort of pain. And it's, so you're it's, saying it's, I think it's just a psychological problem we have because we, we're not truly empathetic. Our empathy is, is like a simulation. You know, even just if, if Brittany's foot is hurting, for example. Brittany is doing the audio today and I saw her foot. And I did feel some empathy. Like when I saw it, and I think you remember me saying, oh, it hurts. But I didn't actually feel the pain. Right. I'm still not feeling what you're feeling. And, and so, you know, I'm not going to go home tonight and think about, oh, what can I do for Brittany to help her get to the doctor? Or, oh my gosh, Brittany's foot is in pain. I mean, even if there's something I could do, I'm probably not going to think about it because it's just not at the top of my mind. And, and that's true sociologically and systemically too of just privileged classes of, of human beings. And it's, it's just been true social justice movements for thousands of years. I mean, you can go back to Socrates and, and Plato and, and the Republic and you have the same issues where the classes that are in a position of power just tend to want us to wait. Well, the classes and individuals who are in the thick of things and suffering and, and being exploited say it has to happen now. And honestly, I'm not even, I, I think incrementalism is, is a valid strategy as long as you have a long-term vision. You know, it should be incrementalism towards some form of liberation or justice. And too often, incrementalism just serves its own purposes. It's just a way to push off the broader transformative That's exactly that what really she was there. saying. She was yeah. critiquing the, the Democratic, Democratic Party, Party for, for doing. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, I, um, yeah, I'd love to speak to her about that. Yeah, there are <laughs> other really differences too. I mean, I think many people would say the animal rights movement, especially when it comes to farm animals, is tougher because so many ordinary people are involved in it. You know, when it comes to white supremacy, police brutality, mass incarceration, sexual violence against women, most of these issues are things that we're not talking about 95, 98, 99% of people participating actively in that exploitation three times a day. Well, animal rights is one where you know, it is for most people three times a day, there's a level of participation. I actually think those distinctions are not as significant because I think one, we actually are participating in things like racial violence, even yeah. if we're not directly the ones, right. you know, killing someone on the street. The person who um, 
keeps calling the police and says, we need more police in our community and doesn't recognize the impact those police might have on communities of color locally. The person who, you know, pays their tax dollars, frankly, and supports politicians who, who ask for policies like stop and frisk where every person of color is being stopped on the street and inevitably it leads to altercations where people like Eric Garner die. And all those people are part of it. And so we're all part of it. Um, it's really just a question of framing. And, you know, one of the reasons we started DXC was because I thought the framing, and many of us who started DXC thought the framing we were using the animal rights movement was just one that was very adversarial towards the ordinary person instead of pointing out the broader systemic issues, whether it's racism, sexism, or violence against animals that are really the root cause of the problem. So I don't know. So I don't blame Brianna that much because I think it's just a product of the culture we live in when it comes to animals. And well, I'm not that nice, mistakes. and I'm going to blame her. I for her. She's so smart. She should. She yeah. I really feel like, uh, yeah. And maybe it's speciesism on her part. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people get insulted when we equate any humans with non-human animals. And I just find that odd, too. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I'd say about Brianna is Brianna's an ally. You know, I don't even know if she's vegetarian, but I know she cares about the animal rights movement. She thinks it's a serious social justice cause. And one of the things we have to do is is absolutely, you know, have take an anti-speciesist perspective, including towards our tactics, but take an anti-speciesist perspective because it's what's going to get this, the result. The reason we have to take an even-handed approach and realize the same tactics and strategies that work for human social justice movements must be deployed for animal rights as well is because they work. <laughs> Not just because we want to use the same tactics because there's some sort of weird equivalence. If incrementalism worked for animals, I'd be happy to do that. But I think the last 40 years of history, since Peter Singer wrote the book Animal Liberation in 1975, strongly suggests it's not working. Um, well, God, there's more animals that are suffering right sure. now on the planet, yeah, although think, some, some animals are doing better. Maybe dogs and cats might have more laws to protect them. Maybe. Horses, yeah. but... There are also more of them on the planet. Certainly more of them on the planet. And, and so more suffering. Yeah, I, I think that the animal rights movement is doing better in a lot of ways than it was 40 years ago. And we have made progress. But I think the periods of progress have always been periods where there is a lot of grassroots direct action. Yeah. You know, the 1980s yeah. and 90s, when the reason we have a real animal rights movement is because of direct action done by organizations like PETA. And people like your brother, yeah. Jonathan Paul. I mean, this is yeah. this is one of the 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 apex is the animal rights movement, you know? Um, and then there is a long period of inaction, you know, honestly, starting with the mid two thousands, there was one period in the eighties and another period in the mid two thousands. And between that, there was basically lethargy, not a lot of change happening. Um, and I think the last five to 10 years, partly because of the work we've done together and partly because of the work you've helped us with, this has been another episode of surging animal rights activists and legislation being passed, companies changing their practices. So many companies dropping fur, selling cage-free eggs, crate-free pork, partly because of the direct action. Yeah. Because the direct action forces the issue forward in a way that a lot of other tactics does not. I agree. So, no. I agree, and I, I'm a wholehearted supporter of direct action. Not everybody can do it. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, so all the other ways of doing of supporting animals and advocating for an issue are important, but yeah. direct action is also a very, very important. Nonviolent direct action. Nonviolent direct action. What was your first experience in jail like? Were you scared when you went in? Uh, no, uh, it was a very small jail. Mm -hmm. I was with one other activist who was a grandmother. She was with oh. an organization called Grandmothers for Peace. Oh, I know them. And, it's a uh, organization, yeah. And she was the founder mm -hmm. and, uh, she's passed since mm -hmm. then. But, um, and so she kept me, we were not in the same cell. And then the second day, somebody who was drunk came in for a night 
And uh, there was a, yeah, and that so was... three people in the jail. This is a tiny jail. Three, uh, in the woman's part. Oh, in the woman's part. I don't know it was part. in the okay. men's part, but I know that the trustee on the men's part, um, I think he was a... Uh, he, like he swept or something one day, and he was very supportive. And I think he might have been even in there for activism too. But anyway, the interesting thing that I what I learned after that was I they they basically uh, uh, said, okay, now you can go. Mm-hmm. And I was in Beatty, Nevada, which is about an hour and a half from Vegas, and I had no way to get home, and it was just <laughs> a desert. Yeah. And so I thought. Okay, well I could take a bus. <laughs> so right. You can't call someone up and say, hey, I'm out. Exactly. Can you come get me? <laughs> I, I could take a, and I was there alone. So sure. I could take a bus, and um, but I didn't want to wait till the bus, so uh-huh. I hitchhiked. Wow. And I felt, I remember standing there in front of the jail, and I felt so lack of self-esteem. And I wow. thought, after only two and a half days, I feel like a less of a person because I just got out of jail, even though I got out for because I was in there because of a reason I strongly believe in, it still had an effect on my self-esteem when I was hitchhiking back. Yeah. Luckily, I got... What do you a, mean by that? Were you ashamed of the fact that you something were in Something like I'd or? been in jail, and yeah. I was in... Uh, yeah, it, yeah, just that stink, I guess. Um, and I thought, wow. And I had an empathy for people who'd been in jail for a long time and then were just let out yeah. into yeah. the world. Me, With two no and support. a half days. Yeah. I mean, it took me probably till I got back to home to feel normal again, but mm-hmm. I'd only been there two and a half days and it was all very nice. You know, yeah. it was just a little So they were jail. nice to you? They were fine. I remember, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it was so small. I hmm. mean, it was nothing compared to the jails that I've been in since. But, sure. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there were only three cells hmm. in the woman's side. In section, I mean, wow. so, um, yeah, very. There was nothing around. Why was it only the two of you getting arrested? This is a plan. Was it, we were the only ones that because we got trying. arrested and then we had to go to trial. Okay. So we, I chose at trial. I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. um, take the, the fine. pay you the fine, and the fine. probably most of them paid the fine. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And so, um, but so you were actually convicted then. Yes, but I don't know if it's on my record, record or anything because it was so long ago. It was '87, hmm. sure. So they wouldn't m- maybe have it. But the guards, you know, when I would go back, I remember there was one female mm-hmm. sheriff who would say hello. <laughs> showed up at the test site again, yeah. uh, but I didn't go to jail again because the the government didn't want to pay sure. for that. It's expensive to send is, somebody to jail. Expensive. So, so actually, I didn't even just, ask you, what did you all do specifically? Did you just try and walk into the property? or? Uh, yeah, we walked over the grate the that line, we're told yeah. not to. There's a cop there who says, you know, yeah, if you cross, cross this grate, you, you will. And then I say yeah. something like, I believe that the world should not have nuclear weapons, sir. Mm-hmm. I'm going to cross this grate. And I cross it. And then he immediately you. handcuffs yeah. you and puts you, well, first on a bus. And then they ended up building a, I don't know if it's still there because I haven't been there in a while, um, a, a huge enclosure mm-hmm. wire enclosure with a set of toilets and some water i think maybe there was some maybe some attorney said you can't you can't do this to people just put them on a bus for hours and hmm. make them wait Interesting. so there were hundreds of people often or sometimes this site were. is a nuclear test site it's the nevada test site where okay. they test nuclear weapons there. where is this exactly it's, what's the city or you said it's an uh, hour and a half out of it's las, called las vegas to, it's 45 minutes from Las Vegas, and it's in Tonopah, I think. Tonopah. Tonopah okay. might be with the city it is. Um, Are they still testing right nuclear weapons the, there? I'm sure, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. 
underground. It's, yeah, it's not talked they about. They can't right do now. above ground. No, they used to do above ground. It causes radiation. Yeah. Yeah. So and that sounds um, pretty dangerous if it's just forty-five minutes from Las Vegas. Oh yeah, the yeah. groundwater. Mm-hmm. It was around there. I think that they also wanted to dump a lot of the nuclear waste and uh, Yucca Yucca Mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yucca. And uh, th- that was stopped. Okay. I'm pretty sure uh, huh. because of Vegas being close by and the water, and of which there's not very much. The fact that Vegas even exists to me yeah. as an environmentalist is already an yeah. affront. For sure. <laughs> so how did so, you overcome that sense of shame, or did you overcome it? Do you still feel a little ashamed? No, it was just coming out of jail that moment, yeah. you, your yeah. self-esteem, because the guards, you didn't have any control. Yeah. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't leave your cell unless they let you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you couldn't, you didn't choose what to eat. They didn't yep. look at you. So they weren't, I don't remember them being mean, but I don't remember, yeah, they didn't look at you at all. Yeah. You, so that feeling, Yeah. My experience was them looking at me with a lot of contempt. Oh, okay. Through the entire jail experience, the first oh, time I was in jail. That wasn't mine at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe being a woman, I'm protected also, yeah. and a white woman. My jail experience was just so stupid. My first jail experience. I think I've told this story before. I was just leafleting on a public sidewalk outside of a Burberry, and the cop was an off-duty police officer. He called one of his buddies in to arrest me, even though everything I was doing was constitutional. And I was a young law professor at the time, and I thought, I'm going to defend my First Amendment rights. I know my rights, and it just didn't matter. They just threw, threw me in jail, charged me with my first felony. And felony? Yeah, I got charged with felony resisting arrest. Oh, I resisting thought my life arrest. was over. And I felt this deep That's sense good. of shame, too, when I came out. I thought, okay, there goes my career. I'm, you know, better expedite the suicide plans because my life is over. Um, and I remember the, the thing that I remember most is this, even though everything I'd done was completely legal and constitutional, and they did ultimately dismiss the charges. And that was when I realized, wow, prosecutors do all sorts of crazy yes. stuff and charge people of all sorts of silly things that don't make any sense. And the, the system of law we have, like what we say is a lie. I'd always been, not even not a lawyer, but a law, not even a, you know, as a law professor who doesn't even see the law. And even lawyers, I feel like are detached from the actual consequences of the law. They work in these computers nowadays, but back then in pieces of paper and don't understand like the practical impact of the law on the communities that the law is supposed to be controlling. But I remember, uh, <laughs> I was cuffed up and I couldn't pee. So I begged the officer, hey, can I go pee? And he finally let me pee. And it was a, it's a black guy. It's really nice. The, um, the guy who brought me in was a complete jerk. Um, like a white guy who was just, you know, insulting me and telling me I was stupid. And, and then they pulled out my ID and figured out, this guy has a faculty ID at Northwestern Law School. <laughs> they were like, what the hell? They didn't understand it at all because I just looked like some 20-year-old kid who was leafleting. And they, they saw the charge because the people who brought me in weren't even the people who arrested me originally. But he finally, the, there's a black guy, super nice and friendly. And he was like, oh, you're a faculty member. That's cool. What are you up to? And so he takes me to pee and, and he knows I'm young because my ID says I'm like 26, 27 years old. I was a pretty young guy at that, at that time. And we're, we're peeing and, and he's like sitting there kind of watching me pee and he says, you know, you're going in the wrong direction. You shouldn't do this. This is gonna, um, and, I, and I said, but I didn't do anything wrong. He said, it doesn't matter. You're going in the wrong direction. You know, why are you doing all these protests? Just go back to your career. And so it wasn't even, he wasn't even saying break the law because I was trying to explain him and don't do this, by the way. Like I, even as a law professor, don't, don't talk to the cops and there's no <laughs> need to argue with them. They're not the ones you have to convince. So, uh-huh. you know, one of the ironclad rules of activism and just basic, you know, civil liberties is don't talk to the police when they're arresting you because everything you say can be used against you and they will twist it to use it against you. But I didn't, I wasn't, actually, I did know that. I had like the, the formal knowledge in my head. You're not supposed to talk to the cops. But I just thought, this is so stupid. All I was doing is leafleting and a guy assaulted me, 
scattered my leaflets and posters everywhere and threw me in jail for it and charged me a felony. Like he assaulted me. Why am I in jail on a felony charge? But even though I was the one who had been wrong, I'd done everything lawful. I understood what he was trying to say. And what he was trying to say was not don't break the law. Cause I think he actually agreed. He's like, yeah, it sounds like you didn't break the law. And this, he even said like, yeah, that charge might go away. What he was trying to tell me to do is don't protest. Yeah. Don't, don't shake, don't, don't, don't shake the boat. Yeah. Just, just go back. You've got a good life ahead of you. You're a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School. You're a faculty member. And that, would, and that don't you're irresponsible fancy, if, because you're, yeah, you're being irresponsible for your life. And why are you doing this? Like go, go back to this elite circle where you can have nice dinners and teach these hootie tootie students who are going to go out and work for big law firms. And, and just don't, why are you even leafling out here? And honestly, a lot of my colleagues at Northwestern were confused too. When you came to my office, it was just like an animal rights office. I had all these posters and banners and leaflets and megaphones. They're like, are you even a law professor? What are you doing? Because you're not teaching animal law. I don't think any of this stuff has to do with your, your, your career and what you're supposed to be doing here. But my, the office, Northwestern, there's a beautiful downtown campus that's right next to the Magnificent Mile. So all the big fur salons, all the places selling foie gras were like two blocks away from my office. So... I mean, what am I going to use my office for? I use yeah. it for animal rights lit. And it was a great place to organize stuff. But needless to say, I didn't get tenure. <laughs> I didn't even get a tenure track job. But I did do a lot of animal rights protesting. But that was my first lesson in how the law of the street is so different from the law in the books. And also how the system really does you know, prevent people from dissenting, especially if you're in a marginalized category. You know, Animal rights is such a marginal cause. And you know, climate change in the 1980s was a pretty marginal cause too. Now it's big. And, you know, if you get arrested, people understand it. But the system does a very good job of, of crushing people, even who don't break the law, crushing them and making them feel they, they should feel ashamed of themselves just for dissenting. Even when your dissent makes complete sense, because there's no discussion or argument about the substantive issue. We didn't get a chance to talk about even the First Amendment right I had to continue leafleting, much less what I was advocating for, which was you know, the basic right of all beings not to be skinned alive, not to be put in a cage for your entire life, which most people from a common sense perspective, they see fur farm footage, especially because a lot of these animals look like dogs and some of them are dogs. You know, there was an expose, I think the Humane Society did five or six years ago, finding that a lot of the stuff that was being labeled fox, like cheap fur, was actually from dogs in China. Not that it makes it any better or worse, but for most Americans, it's a little shocking to think of Fido or, you know, Lassie being turned into a coat. Yeah. especially after being tortured and, and abused for you know, a year of her life in a cage. But that's what's happening. And, and we can't even get into that substance because the system does such a good job of telling you you're on the wrong path just because you dissent. This is why I think, I mean, I'm really concerned about activist culture because activist culture has become very monolithic. You know, and I, I, don't even, I don't even like the term cancel culture. To me, it's not about cancel culture. It's about genuine inclusivity. Like good movements are inclusive. They have diversity of perspectives. They value dissent. And too often activist movements have become very monolithic. It's like yeah. our way or the highway. You know, Carol Adams and her perspective on direct action. I actually think it's wonderful for someone like Carol Adams to have that perspective in this movement. I wouldn't want her to be canceled. Yeah. And I don't want her to be removed from, from various speaking events. But she tried to do that to us because she had a different strategic perspective. Now she clothed it in other language. She claimed it was because of sexual harassment issues or Wayne has too much power. She knows nothing about the internal dynamics of DXC. I mean, the other people in DXC leadership find this laughable. Because by that point, my power was waning and I was checking out and I was on my way out. And I've been outside of leadership. I haven't been in a single leadership conversation for two years. And around that same time, Carol Adams is saying this is a cult that Wayne controls with an iron fist. And it's just, it's so ridiculous. But we've gotten to a point where we can't have disagreements even within movements. 
Like set aside disagreements between us and the animal agriculture people. I think even those disagreements need to be worked out. We should be able to have conversations with them while we protest them. We should protest them and have dialogue. But even within movements, it feels like we can't have conversations right now. And that's dangerous. That's very dangerous because we can't, we can't win or build if we don't work together, right? So, I agree. Anyways, and sorry I... for that diatribe. No, it's good. <laughs> it's good. It's good. I think the last two years I've also, um, I was so shocked when Trump was elected. I yeah, realized how the there's too. so many uh, points of view that I had never heard. Like I'd never, all the Trump supporters, I couldn't imagine what they were thinking. I was mm -hmm. so bowled over that even one person would vote for him, yet so many did. So I knew that I didn't have enough information. Sure. And I think to be curious is so important, is to be curious and keep asking to try and understand, not mm -hmm. to try and be right, which is hard. Yeah. We all want to be right, or a lot of us do. We're grown, we're, it's our culture, like one person has to win and one person has to lose. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe there's a third way there's. where everybody can find, because I find that if, well, I guess this is back to when I was a kid and I was, would see everybody's side. People have good reasons mm -hmm. from their own experience. And since I, there's, uh, since I'm in a bubble of my own, like everyone's in their own bubble, I have to remember that Yeah. when I, when I, uh, talk to them yeah. yeah yeah trump is the worst example of this of just not tolerating any sort of dissent well, the yeah. number of people he fired you know and just uh, even the way he handled debates i mean it's kind of entertaining and amusing which is unfortunately part of the reason he had power but just every single person who disagreed with him on anything was a liar was an idiot was stupid yeah exactly was, no know, conversation no energy no it's just it, it just devolves into insults so quickly and there's no attempt to understand someone else's perspective and and i think the I have talked to a lot of people who voted for Trump, and I, I was not that surprised he won. My dad voted for Trump. Um, he's a good guy. He's a really generous human being. And I think people voted for Trump because they didn't see an alternative. Um, they saw a lot of problems in our society, and a lot of those problems being caused by elites, um, whether it's CEOs, people in government, people who are doing very well. While but the then why the did they vote for apart. Trump, who's an elite? That's what doesn't make sense. Because... I think people felt that he was giving it to the elites, even if he was uh -huh. an elite himself. In many ways, you like the elite. It's it's kind of like, you know, if you're an environmentalist, you love uh, the former coal executive who turns against the other coal executives. If you're an animal rights right. activist, you love, you right. know, we love the Howard Lyman's, the the yeah. Manet, Son and Kings, because this proves that we're right. When even people on the other side, and and I think to a lot of people who've seen these systems fail them. And, uh, and increasingly, this is even people of color. Like a lot of Latinos voted for Trump in the last electoral cycle, more than they did in 2016, which is shocking, you know, because yeah. given the vitriol, I mean, he called Mexicans racist. I think the same with black Americans too, right? And I think black yeah. Americans too. He had a higher share of, the, 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 of people of color in this country than he did in 2016. Um, and I think what a lot of people like about him and see in him that, that they, um, they want to support is, is that he's, he's giving the middle finger to the elites, the people who are doing well. And, and I think the reason they're doing that is because they're not seeing enough good faith effort or even dialogue among the elites in a way that genuinely recognizes some of these popular concerns. And there's a lot of complicated reasons for that. I don't think it's as simple a story as, you know, politicians have been bought out by corporations. I think there are deeper cultural problems. Um, the last podcast I did was this, this guy, Noah Smith, who's an economist. He's a columnist at Bloomberg. 
And he thinks we're going through a phase in human history where our basic models of governance are crumbling. <laughs> you know, in, in the 1900s or the early 1900s, we still had this, you know, period of imperialism and, and, and various forms of dictatorial or at least monarchical systems. And then the 1920s and 1930s happened and the entire world basically went on one of two paths, either straight up dictatorship, like Nazi Germany and, and, and communist Russia went down or some form of representative democracy. And, and Noah thinks that we're in a similar period of shakeout right now, that our institutions are crumbling and we're going to have a pivot sometime in the future. And, you know, some countries will go in one direction, some countries will go in another. And, and hopefully our country is one of those that gets a little better, that tosses away some of the worst of the institutions and, and the systems we have and recognizes that our society is at a breaking point and we sign something like a new deal. Um, but it's not guaranteed. It depends a lot on what we do today. So we have to work for it. I totally agree. Yeah. I'll have to. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's, I, I think that there are just so many indicators that people are at that breaking point. You know, I mean, we're living in California where homelessness is just outrageous. I mean, it's 150,000 of the 500,000 homeless people in this country are in this state. This is supposedly the most progressive state in the nation. The supermajority of both how, houses of the state legislature are Democrats, a Democrat governor, and yet we left still so many people, you know, to, to sleep outside. And any one of the many billionaires in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area where I'm from has more than enough wealth to house every single one of these people just with their own income. You know, one of these people could do everything. Like if you took the, the calculation I always say is if you took 10% of Jeff Bezos' wealth, you could house every single unhoused person in the entire country with market rate housing. They could have a nice apartment in San really? Francisco. Yeah. He's that wealthy? When you have $200 billion, oh, yeah. $20 billion would do it. Granted, that's just for one year, so you'd have to house in the next year too. But still, <laughs> I mean, let's just take his 10% yeah. of his income every year for the next 10 years. Right. And we can house all the homeless people in this country for 10 years. And, you know, he'll still be a wealthy guy. At the end, he'll have $5 million, which is plenty of money for him. Well, you know, it's funny when, you know, Ukraine, we all of a sudden came up with $800 million. Isn't that, How much did we send to Ukraine? I think it's $20 billion in aid. And I think it's oh. split $10 billion. Yeah, because I... Within the first week, we sent $800 million, I yeah. think. It was right away we could find that money. It, and it's weird because we, we always say we don't have the money to, to house people. We don't yeah, have the money to pay for, for kids who are in poverty. I mean, the child poverty in this country is higher than any developed country in the world. It's astonishing. Mm -hmm. And... We don't give even children, you know, even children don't have the right to housing. Yeah. So like I can kind of get it. I don't agree with it, but I can at least understand the argument for why an unhoused adult person, we shouldn't just give them a house because, oh, they're just going to use drugs, you know, they should work for it, blah, blah, blah. But a kid, yeah. sorry, that argument just doesn't work. Every kid deserves to have a roof over their head. Yeah. And, and we don't give every kid. Only one out of six kids in this country who needs housing gets housing. So child what do poverty, you say, child homelessness is so, so bad in this country. So what do you say to someone who says, why, why do you care about cows more than kids? I don't. I care about them both equally. And, so why aren't you putting your energy? Because that, that's what a lot of people will yeah. argue. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think it's, it's a good faith argument. I think too many animal rights activists just dismiss it and say, oh, what are you doing about the, the you know, kids? And just kind of get back into a, a, a war of words, you know? And, but I think... I think people are coming at it from a legitimate good faith perspective, just confused as to why you care about a cow uh, more than a human being or even equally to a human being. And, and what I usually say is, is, is two things. One is, you know, I don't. We do care about both of them and we should care about both of them because, you know, as, as ancient Buddhist master said, all life on this earth is equal. Um, 
And the reason I'm advocating for animals is because there's so few people doing it, mm. you know? And so I'm thinking about where is the place where there's most need in the same way that if, if I've got a pizza and I know there's a starving kid outside and, and another kid over here is just a little hungry because they had a, an early lunch, I'm going to give the pizza to the starving kid. Uh, and that's not the greatest comparison because there are a lot of human beings that are starving, suffering much more than a kid who's had you know, an early lunch. But the point is the same. Conceptually, there's, there's so much greater need right now for non-human animals. Well, maybe it's more that there's a need for activists for non-human for animals. There's a lot of people speaking out for, for children. Yeah. But if you feel like you care about that issue, then go there because you're needed there. Yeah. You, Wayne. Yeah, I mean, part of it is just personal passion too, for sure. Because yeah. if you want to be a great activist, you've got you've to bleed the issue. Yeah. You know, you've got to feel it deeply. And I... I mean, the reality is I'd probably be an activist for something regardless because I've just gone through enough experiences in life that I, I'm an activist true and true. And I, I think even if animal liberation is achieved, I mean, I will get drunk. I'll drink for the first time and I'll get drunk because I promised the co-founder of DXE when we pass something like an anti-speciesism bill, it's the first day I'm going to drink and I'm going to get totally wasted and finally experience what it means to be inebriated. <laughs> uh, I've never and, been inebriated too, so I've only well, had I say two glasses. Be judgmental. People like to drink, they should drink. If it makes you happy, do it. But Although there was, a, there was a study just published today that even light levels of drinking Not apparently are dangerous. Yeah, it they used don't to be the recommend case that people it. said that you know a glass of wine every night is good for your heart. No longer true. The evidence no. is showing that every drink. I mean, obviously, one drink at night probably isn't going to kill you, but it's still more dangerous than not drinking at all. So yeah, we two totalers were. <laughs> We're the healthy and ones. And it kills brain cells. Oh, I've had two glasses of wine in my life when I was 16 wow. and 18. How did you get away with being in Hollywood and not drinking any alcohol? <laughs> I mean, did I that not, I mean, it, like on the Baywatch set, weren't people drinking and taking you off for beers afterwards? Oh, no, no, no? not at all. Really? No, no drugs either. I mean, no that drugs? I saw, when you don't do it, people I don't, don't know. bring like it I to Like I said, peer pressure's never been a thing for me. Yeah. I think because... I always I did have an uh, sort of an internal compass and huh. um, you know strong family support and sure. so I just never I mean I, I want like I want you? people to like me though I still have sure. that yeah, yeah. but to but I don't feel a need to join them I yeah. guess in, in their stuff if did I did you get offered like coke or heroin or does that sort of thing happen in Hollywood yeah yeah, it yeah does. did it you does. see it happen. <laughs> I, I'm sure I got offered, I'm sure I got offered Coke, Coke. Wow. but, um, but you said enough. I think I just said, Oh no, thank That's you very nicely. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, it just isn't my thing and I'm not attracted to, I mean, I'm an athlete. So sure. if you do drugs or yeah, drink, you can't you. get up early and yeah, work out. So yeah. it's not my, not my thing. Don't not interested in that life at yeah. all. Did you face much sexual harassment? Uh, no, really? uh, no. And, uh, Even as an 18 year old young actor and well, let's put it this way. I, cause you were like, to a, d by today's standards, I probably did, did but I didn't notice it. Okay. You didn't notice um, it. yeah, I did. Did you feel unsafe? No, you no, didn't feel never, unsafe. never. I've never felt unsafe oh. around men. Interesting. I haven't. Uh, I was on a movie in Yugoslavia and the, the producer's girlfriend asked if I wanted to have a threesome with, with them. Thanks. And I was young and I, I just said, no, I didn't huh. feel insulted or I felt a little pissed off because I was uncomfortable with the producer, Sure, but I wasn't, never felt that my job was in danger okay. at all for saying no. Huh. And the girlfriend was, we were, we went on walks together. We would chat like girls. And I think yeah. she thought I was free and you know, sure. yeah. but 
truthfully, I, that wasn't that I was a little like, no, I was a little like shocked a little bit. Never thought, I guess I knew that existed, but, um, so yeah, but I didn't feel like he did anything wrong. I guess I didn't feel pressured. Sure. So, but granted you're, you're tough as nails. I mean, (laughs) you're, you're probably more inclined to feel safe than the average human being in very dangerous situations, given that you've been arrested. How many times have you been arrested now? It's got to be at least Probably. a dozen, right? Oh, it's more than, more a, than dozen. a dozen. It was a dozen, a, decade, a yeah. dozen at the nuclear test site, wow. and then because you got arrested for, again and again and again there. F- yes, wow. uh-huh. I would go there every year, Mother's yeah. Day or Easter. They would have um, things, and I would go. And then I also was arrested um, for in 1991, I think it was for. It was sort of like your situation where I was said, "Yeah, yeah, sure, I'll show up on the steps of the." courthouse or wherever it uh-huh. was to advocate for AIDS patients to be able to get fast track drugs. Yeah. And, um, it turns out we weren't supposed to be there, they said. And so we just sat down and I got arrested. And I remember it was so different then because they didn't know much about AIDS mm-hmm. or there were, and there was a fear of gays and I think sure. every, everyone else was gay and there was one trans woman there and the the cops all they put on gloves to touch us yeah Yeah, they um and then um arrested for electric cars Mm -hmm. and then um animals what for electric cars what does that mean um i have been driving electric cars since 1990 awesome so i i leased one of the first ev1s which was general motors Motors car car in in 1996 and in 2003 general motors wanted to take back the car and now Mm -hmm. we they they only allowed us to lease them so i didn't own the car and uh they they took back the car and i i wept when that car left because it was such an amazing car i'd been driving cars that went 20 that were conversions backyard conversions my first car went 25 miles on a charge Hmm. my second car went 50 miles on a charge (laughs) and along comes the ev1 which did uh, um, the first EV one I got was almost a hundred miles wow. on a charge, and it was just it was a dream to drive. Sure, and so fast and smooth, and um, yeah, had air conditioning. I don't think my other cars had any yeah. kind of bells and whistles. And then uh, we found out that General Motors was crushing those cars. Those sure. perfectly beautiful, innovative technological marvels they were crushing and mm-hmm. so we we did a 24 7 one month vigil wow. outside the place where they were keeping cars in okay. burbank to stop the crusher from crushing taking them the out yeah. the the they were taking them to the last and why the, were they crushing Nevada them? they didn't want them to exist yeah because they wanted their, their main electric business. cars to go as soon as the reason general motors authorized made a car in the first place was because it had to because Mm -hmm. california mandated that the top seven i think car companies had to make a zero emission car Mm -hmm. and so they did Um, most companies just converted a a model that they had put batteries in it and Mm -hmm. and sold or leased a few general motors made a car from the ground up yeah so kudos to them but then when as soon as the mandate was lifted they said we don't want to deal with these cars anymore. We don't. We want to go back to gas only, gas only. And so they pulled them all off the market and, and away them. from people and um, crushed them. Wow! 
And so I was arrested because I, I was on vigil. I was on watch. Mm-hmm. We always had at least two, one or two activists on watch 24-7. And I was on watch the morning that the trucks came. Mm-hmm. And I got into my electric car, which was a RAV4, converted RAV4, and parked it in front of the truck as it was leaving. Mm-hmm. So it couldn't leave. And myself mm. and another activist, Colette Devine. So we were arrested. Yeah. And we, we didn't spend long in jail, five hours maybe. Sure. And then I had to do 100 hours of community service. service. This is in the early 2000s? Uh, 2005. 2005, yeah. yeah. It's kind of amazing that a lot long ago, there was a car, an electric car that could do 100 miles. Yeah, yeah, and, no, it's true. Yeah, yeah I think there's, I, there, I know there's been a documentary made about this, Who Killed the Electric Car. It's a pretty good documentary. And there's a lot of theories as to about what happened. But the bigger picture to me is just, one of the reasons direct action and grassroots movements are so important because you can't expect corrupt institutions to reform themselves for the most part, at least when they're systemically corrupt. And GM did this because they knew that you know, their model of gas guzzling cars depended on the prevention of an upstart, yeah. like an electric car startup like Tesla. And I'm not saying Tesla's key to changing the world for the better. I don't know. It's It did a great thing for electric cars because before that, everyone yeah. thought electric cars were just these old golf cars. No, Even and the Tesla's, EV1 couldn't yeah. change that thing. And Tesla yeah. did amazing. And Tesla's value now is more than all the other American car companies combined, which is kind of amazing. It's it's Because it's not actually even selling that many cars. It's just about investors recognizing the potential for this market in yeah. the future. The writing's on the wall. Well, also, they've but got the solar market. They've got so they're, they're part. Tesla doesn't, Tesla own a solar city. Elon is, is oh, the Elon founder might, of Solar City, but yeah. I, I actually, his, bro- his brother in law. Actually, I think you're right. I think Solar City did get bought out by Tesla. I think it's owned by Tesla now. I think, I think his brother in law owned it first or something. And then, yeah, he, no, I think he was CEO and founder of Solar City. Uh, <laughs> my. Funnily, my stepmom is actually an accountant at, at former Solar City oh. and now Tesla. But I think they were bought out by Tesla. SpaceX is a company that's still separate by Elon Musk. Okay. I mean, I think that these companies are always reflections of the change that's happening. I think part of what happened with Tesla is that electric cars became more cool and an entrepreneur came forward and delivered what the market wanted and what people wanted. And it was because of advocacy, it was because of great narratives, it's because the fact that we here in California have seen the impacts of climate change pretty directly with the wildfires that nearly burn our homes down every summer. And, and so there's, there's an appetite for that market. But well, usually we've always, when these changes happen, it's not because some old dinosaur decides to reform. It's because there's an upstart that comes in the picture. You're exactly right. You're yeah. exactly right. And actually, the electric car movement is the one issue that I know that I, that I saw from beginning, beginning to end, so to mm-hmm. speak, in that um, it became mainstream, yeah, so I didn't so need mainstream. to be part of it anymore. Yeah. Um, but we, uh, the grassroots movement, uh, you know, we started the largest electric car nonprofit in the world, actually, mm-hmm. Plug in America, and um, and got a lot of attention for electric cars from that yeah. that protest. That's awesome. I'm going to turn the same question you'd ask me back to you. I mean, what do you say to people when they ask the question, "Why animal rights?" I mean, you've done all these causes that. Maybe not at the time, but certainly with the benefit of hindsight, we see as very righteous causes, you know, anti-nuclear protests, anti-war protests, electric cars, which are now mainstream, AIDS activism, which we now recognize, you know, AIDS was not just a plague of the immoral, but was an epidemic for us all to be concerned about. So, I mean, I guess my first question is, why is animal rights so important to you? I think it's because... Um, 
they need me. <laughs> There's so many people. It's a fringe. I think I'm well suited to it because it's a more f- less accepted issue, and I am an accepted person in in the world being a white middle. I know I keep going back to that, but mm-hmm. that it gives me so much power yeah. being a person of white privilege and middle class and over, and now I'm over 50. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of that, oh, well, she doesn't really, she's not dangerous. Don't worry about her. So they kind of <laughs> ignore you. Yeah. And then being an actress helps too, of course, because sure. that gives me sort of a foundation of, well, she's normal. Yeah, yeah. And reputable somehow. And yeah. then, you know, I have, because I've worked on so many issues that have to do with people, nobody can sling. I mean, I'm, I give blood. Mm. I'm giving platelets tomorrow. I know I feed the homeless once a week. Mm-hmm. I registered voters for 18 years. Nobody can tell me that I don't love people, people too. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I think a good fit with the animal rights movement sure. because I can help give it more legitimacy sure. in my own little backyard, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I think when my brother went to jail, uh, you know, I was a vegetarian mm-hmm. and I thought, and I, and I had been a vegetarian since I was 14. And so what, 30 years. And I had kept telling myself I couldn't go vegan because I might go back to my eating disorder because hmm. it would be restrictive. Sure. And when my brother went to jail for three and a half years for um, being an animal rights activist with the Animal Liberation Front, um, I think I, I realized that I wanted to fit, take up... The, what he did. I mean, mm. we're, we're a close family. Sure. We've never really talked about it. He, he's not directly involved with the animal rights movement anymore, partly because he felt it was too dangerous, but partly because he felt, I think, um, you know, it's changed a lot and the, yeah. the movement is, is different now. And now he's helping people cause he's a firefighter yeah, just and he was a volunteer firefighter for years and got all sorts of awards. And now he, he does it for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so maybe there was a gap because my brother wasn't there, so I decided to fill, to fill it. it. I don't wow. think it was conscious right then, yeah. but um, that might have been why. And I became vegan while he was in jail. Wow. After visiting him in jail, I would go on a regular basis, and uh, he was in Arizona. And mm-hmm. um, and this is like the early to mid-2000s? or when uh, He was in uh, jail to from 2007 to 2011. Wow. Or, okay. Yeah, end of 2007 to January of 2011. And this is for an action where a horse slaughterhouse was was allegedly burned down by him, correct? Um, a horse slaughterhouse was burned down in Redmond, Virginia. There okay. were no horses there. There was sure. no uh, no no people there. But and the town of Redmond. Mm-hmm. hated it because it caused backups in the sewage system because of the yeah. blood and the hair. Sure, and and it's a species that most even ordinary Americans really care about and yeah. don't see as, as food animals or animals yeah. that should be subjects of slaughter. 
So he was he was a, in a group that um, burned it. Mm-hmm. He was the, he was a lookout actually. Wow. Um, my understanding is, but as I said, you know, when they first came to arrest him, I didn't know the extent of his Involved. liberations. Yeah. He had liberated so many animals in yeah. the la- and over the last twenty years, and I um, I'd known of some of them. He he did go to mink farms and buy them, mm-hmm. and then uh, and and exotic that. animal farms, yeah. and buy them and f- and place those animals, but. Um, yeah, I didn't know the extent of his underground, uh, and you can, there's a, there's a book about it that, and Leighton Woodhouse did a short movie on him, Mm -hmm. a 10 minute movie, which is really good called, I think it's his rescued series. Um, so yeah, so Jonathan was, arrested and because he would not cooperate with the government in terms of telling Turning other on other on. people yeah. he got a jail sentence um mm-hmm. of uh four years and he served three and a half yeah in the federal system you don't get like half your half your um sentence cut for good behavior yep. you get yeah. something you, you smaller usually 80 percent of the sentence oh okay roughly. yeah that makes sense what, what was your feeling when he was convicted and went to prison well you know we had a lawyer he had a lawyer this who is had, prison not jail right if yeah it was federal prison, federal prison. Mm-hmm. Okay. uh medium security mm-hmm. uh he he we had he had a lawyer who had a family meeting mm-hmm. because john he wanted to convince jonathan to uh cooperate so that he'd get a, a lower sentence because the government was saying he would get 60 years wow and I remember my mother saying that she felt that he shouldn't, he shouldn't tell on people to get a lighter sentence. And I remember my brother saying very clearly that whatever he experienced in jail would be not as bad as what he'd seen in those laboratories. Mm. And uh, so he was okay with yeah. that. And um, the lawyer just couldn't convince the family sure. to go and side uh, with the lawyer's point of view that Jonathan should should uh, give up. Uh, we just didn't think it was a moral thing to do. Yeah. And uh, so that's amazing. My brother is. Yeah, what did your dad say? My dad had passed by, oh, then, by then, and okay. thank God too, because yeah. I think he would have been. Would have destroyed him. He, he was. My dad was. Yeah. Even though he supported our activism, he had supported my brother when my brother. My brother had gone to jail in 1993 mm-hmm. because um, his his roommate was Rod Coronado, who had been arrested, uh, who was on the lam, mm-hmm. and so they arrested my brother because they wanted my to brother to test it to, yeah. and my brother wouldn't. He just shut up and said he took the fifth, which you can't actually take mm-hmm. the fifth at a grand jury. Yeah. So he was put in jail. Especially since I think they offered him immunity, so the fifth wouldn't have been relevant. Okay, they yes. They can basically offer you immunity and say, we, we promise you you're not going to be prosecuted for what you testify to. So now yeah. you have to testify. <laughs> and you, he couldn't go in with a lawyer. He just yeah. had my sister and I yeah, outside outside yeah. the room, where he, but he couldn't talk to us in the room. Yeah. And so he was put in jail to try and get him to talk. Yeah. And you can't be kept in jail if they realize that you're not going to talk because then it would be yeah. punitive. Mm-hmm. So they kept him in jail for six months and he didn't talk and he didn't eat much either because he was vegan. And I was on Baywatch at the time and we hired a, uh, a social, a, a media, not a social media. There was no social media in 1993, uh, a media expert. And he, he trained my sister and I 
uh, to and how to speak on this issue because um, you know, Watch did this for you? No. Okay, I was going to say we paid for it. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, my father paid for it, but uh-huh. um, we were trained in media training. Okay. And my Baywatch, uh, you know, the fact that I was on Baywatch at that time gave me an in to media, mm-hmm. and so we we started doing media and the did you know like insider edition and mm-hmm. and some news outlets the morning that people magazine came out my brother was released wow so he should have been released earlier because he was never going to talk but yeah. it really was the ability for me an actress my sister a firefighter at the san francisco fire department talking about why it's unfair that my brother is in jail because a grand jury, which is illegal in England because yeah. they're considered not democratic. Um, you know, and that, that was that he was released. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, one of the most messed, things, messed up things about the system, and we talk about this in the healthcare context too, but you know, when people are faced with these, they're basically extortion efforts by the government, you know, who say you have to cooperate with us or you could face up to 60 years. It's not, you don't even get like a clear choice. They give you the maximum and the minimum. And then it's just a random watering between. It's up to the discretion of the judge who sentences you. But it generally and goes down. I mean, it goes we down. knew the that. The maximum and sentence is very rare. But there have been cases where animal rights activists have been hit with near maximum sentences, even mm-hmm. on first offenses. Mm-hmm. And so you get this huge range. I mean, it could destroy your life or it could be you know, a year or a month even in prison. And you don't know. And they use that uncertainty to almost coerce you into cooperating with them. And there's something deeply messed up about that. And it, it just, this is... A weird parallel to draw but i think it's a parallel with a lot of people who maybe haven't been in that situation where they have to decide whether to do something they think is immoral to serve their own self-interest and prevent themselves from possibly going to prison for 60 years is healthcare, where you go and you get a procedure and your doctors don't necessarily tell you exactly how much it's going to cost and you've got an insurance system oh. that's so complicated it's like and so many people are making this this catch 22 decision where it's like do i get the health care i need or do i jump into the fire and hope it doesn't burn me yeah. You know, and I think it's 40% or maybe it's 60% of all bankruptcies in this country are triggered by medical debt, which is just not right. Yeah. But the, what we do to criminal defendants is super messed up. And, and they don't do this in other countries. It's, it's, first of all, I mean, the United States has the highest rate of incarceration in the world by a huge margin. Huge. Unbelievable. Like, we're 4x worse than well, China. Well, it's privatized. You know, China, so people make money. They do make money off of it. But there's just this attitude, this punitive attitude. And mm-hmm. it, I mean, it goes back to some of the things we've been talking about. Just... Even in our interpersonal relations, I think there's something about American culture. And I, I love America and I love American culture. My family's alive because of America. I've been born. I was born because of American soldiers that fed my family in Taiwan and supported my grandfather when they fled China and were eating grass and water. You know, that's it. That's all they had. So I think this country has so many wonderful things about it. But one thing that's really bad about it is this I think it comes partly from this the revolutionary origins, the fact that this country was founded on a violent revolt which just goes to the, the thing we were saying about Gandhi at the beginning of this podcast, you know, is it, is it, does what we do lay a foundation for who we are inevitably? And if what starts in violence ends in violence, but I think there's this punitive, almost violent punitive nature to American culture that has never been completely resolved. And we had to do it because the, the entire system of slavery obviously d- depended on a violent coercion. The American revolution depended on violence. The system of Jim Crow depends on violence system of, of sexual violence against both women and LGBT folks, you know, dependent on this, this notion that if you cross the boundaries, if you did things we say you can't do, we will hurt you. Do you think it's individualized? Because Germany has a very much more liberal uh, yeah. um, attitude towards 
the the jail system is more rehabilitative sure. than all of your punitive. Yeah, all of your. And oh, I'm not familiar. I just saw something on uh, 60 Minutes or something yeah. about the German system, and I was blown away. It yeah. actually it changed my whole view. It was so like the this prisoner was going out for ice cream with his mother. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I know. It's like, and and, and his cell country, was you know, really you nice. Get out of your toilet. Yeah, you know, so it, it was definitely it was yeah fascinating. Um, but I guess that this individual culture, the individualistic that yeah, I think it's individual it, cultures and part of his path dependency too. I mean, in, in the United States, partly you know mass incarceration is a relic of the slave system. We had to we've been imprisoning people and holding them captive for a long time, wow, and I we never really that, we that's... never really fixed that. So. Mm. Anyways, we've gone on for quite some time. I just I want to end the podcast which with the same question I, I usually ask our guests at the end, which is you've gone through a lot of changes in your life. And what have you learned about change you want to share with our audience? About change? Yeah, change. Personal change, systemic change. Just what have you learned about change that you think is just practical advice other people who are going through changes or would like to see some changes should hear? Change, it changes, it will happen. And that's the thing is that we, I think... I think we have to think really big. And that's one thing I really mm. like about DXE. And it's um, it's aiming for a time when there's, there's no animal suppression. Mm -hmm. People will say, well, that's not practical. But until we start vocalizing it, of course it's not practical. Yeah. But if we, who would have thought that gays would be married mm -hmm. and able to adopt? Who would have thought 20 years ago that was... Yeah. That was possible. Really, For I sure. got married in 2000. My twin sister, Caroline, who's gay, she couldn't marry. Mm -hmm. And she didn't know if she'd ever be able to marry. But nope. You know, what, uh, a decade later? Yeah. So we can, we can, we can, if we can visualize it, we should, we should dream really big All when right. it's to the good of others and nature and animals. Dream big, indeed. I think those are good ones to end this podcast and conversation. Thanks so much, Alexandra. Really appreciated it. It's great to talk to you, Wayne. Thank sure. you so much. Yeah, we'll see you all next time. Hey, everyone. Um, thanks for listening to the conversation. I, I don't know how you answered the question I posed at the beginning of this podcast. Does safety lead to risk-taking or does risk-taking lead to safety? But however you concluded uh, the answer to that question, uh, I hope you found the discussion an interesting one. I want to thank, as usual, the folks helping out with this podcast. Shalola Fakis is editing, Ronnie Rose, Dean Wurzakowski, um, Julie Waldrop, uh, Catherine Bin, everybody who's helped out. I really appreciate it. I want to thank all of you. And if you enjoyed the podcast or any of the prior episodes, please rate the podcast on whatever app you're using to listen to it, share it with your friends. And then today, I, I want to make a special request because it's actually my birthday in a few days, June 18th, I'm turning 41. And this will be my first birthday as a convicted film. And it's going to be my last birthday until probably um, the most dangerous trial I have remaining, which is a trial in Beaver County, Utah, in a case involving an open rescue at the largest pig farm in the nation. We walked into that farm. We exposed the fact that Smithfield Foods was continuing to use gestation crates, these tomb-like devices where mother pigs are trapped for their entire adult lives, two foot by seven foot space for a 600-pound animal. Just contrary to their public statements, contrary to the promises their CEO had made, and we exposed them because of that, the world knew that Smithfield was lying. And there's actually litigation right now um, involving the fraud they perpetrated on the public. 
that was only possible because of all of you. We would not have been able to do that rescue, that investigation. We would not have been able to get a little baby pig, Lily, out of that facility if not for the support from people like you. And as we go to trial, we have a lot of expenses we need to cover. We need to pay our fees for expert witnesses. We are hoping to support our lawyers who are going to be taking a week or two off their ordinary lives, giving us a pro bono discounted rate, you know, much less than they'd otherwise charge. But still, we need to compensate them somewhat so they can justify, you know, taking all of the personal sacrifices, the personal time away from their normal practice to represent the animals and represent us. And on my birthday, I hope we can all chip in. Every bit does count. There's a fundraiser for my birthday on Facebook. We'll put it in the show notes. And if you have a few bucks or you know someone who does, um, please share with them the Facebook fundraiser because it goes to a nonprofit organization. There are no fees or costs associated, no fees or costs taken away from your contribution, even if you use a credit card. So if you can, um, contribute a little bit for the animals, for us, and for this cause. Thanks so much. I will see you all next time.